We just want to take a quick moment to speak to our California listeners. You may know that Restore the Fourth and our coalition partners have been groundbreaking in bringing police surveillance technology oversight legislation to several municipalities and counties in California. But we want to see that extended statewide. State Bill 1186 would do just that, but it needs to be approved by the Appropriations Committee. So if you live in California, and if you're especially listening to us on Friday, May 25th, would you please call State Senator Ricardo Lara and urge him to support SB 1186 and move it to the Senate floor? His office can be reached at 916-651-4033 or on Twitter at the handle S-E-N-Ricardo-L-A-R-A. Thank you. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon. Your thoughts. Encryption is a munition. And in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number 11, recorded on May 20th, 2018. The Patriots, its active members, have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast dated March 29th, 2018. My name is Fong. And I'm EJ. Welcome to Privacy Patriots Podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Well, as always, uh, there's been so many developments every day. We're playing triage as we always are, right? Without really trying to overwhelm ourselves or you or... There's a couple uh, bright moments here this episode right some some a couple bits of good news for once i i believe we'll get to that yeah we've racked up a couple of victories in the last couple of weeks was six eight weeks something like that mm-hmm. yeah i guess the first uh little tidbit uh back in early april uh the doh uh department of family and security um responded to a request that uh senator ron wyden of oregon had put in and um their response was that they had uh detected the use of stingrays in the dc area um stingrays are these devices that are often used by police departments to uh basically act like cell phone towers and then intercept cell phone communications mm-hmm. uh and the dohs said that they were not aware of who was operating these stingrays mm-hmm. of course they didn't mention how many stingrays they were operating in the dc area but you know yeah i'm sure most listeners know but these devices basically do a man in the middle attack through uh, cellular frequencies and kind of pick up all of the cellular traffic in a certain area and then proxy to the nearest real cell phone tower. But uh, they get these phones to kind of connect to them automatically because they kind of advertise as a cell phone tower with the strongest signal. Right. You know, kind of parallels the encryption debate here where what they say is absolutely fine for them to do all of a sudden is a a huge liability and something nefarious when some unidentified third party is uh engaging in so someone in dc who's not the government is just running these things uh scooping up who knows what data right and you can imagine any number of foreign powers would want to do that Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure the U.S. government is running stingrays in other people's capitals. Yeah. I mean, do we want to li- limit it just to, to uh, uh, adversarial governments, or could it be uh, a new uh, style of paparazzi? Could could, could huh? the Drudge Report be running one? I, 
I mean, uh, there was a, a talk a couple years ago at Black Hat, I believe it was, where a guy basically mounted one of these on a drone and was able to fly it around. So, I mean, they're not the most sophisticated piece of equipment. So. Mm. But, you know, I still have, this is a, a huge hole in my knowledge. I have yet to learn this. But the fact that these work in such a turnkey way, it sounds like, to, to the law enforcement or the mysterious parties that we're talking about it almost seems like a like the protocols for cell phones were just not well thought out in a certain way where like to even have a a network design that that where this can happen just blows my mind there's no kind of authentication in terms of like i'm a real tower you know like yeah and uh, i'm hoping that we could maybe get some somebody that can elaborate on all this how, how the heck is whether it be gsm lte uh unlike the internet where the protocols are so open and you can kind of just dig into o'reilly and learn all this stuff these uh, proprietary cell phone networks are a little yeah tougher to get a handle on yeah i don't know uh another one of our members i'm sure knows he's yeah. with us today so yeah, and then, he'd be the guy I'd go to to ask these questions. You know, yeah. after Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, are we talking about somebody in our in our immediate circle? Yeah, yeah. Outside of our immediate circles, there was. I'm just going to give a call out because uh, there was an anonymous person, semi-anonymous person that um, joined our uh, our election forums um, huh. and went only by Helios and uh, had a lot to say on this matter. And I was hoping to maybe get in touch with him again because it sounded like he might be a good resource for hmm. learning uh, the ins and outs of cell phone protocols and and how these work, how the apps that supposedly protect you from stingrays work. Uh, ignorance makes me anxious. So I would like to kind of get a handle on what is really going on with these things. Well, Helios, if you're out there, uh, get in touch with us. We'd love mm. to chat. And uh, I'll just take a, a quick moment to note that Restore the Fourth uh, did have its annual elections. We have a national board, um, and, uh, of course, we have different chapters throughout the country and we uh re-elected our incumbent uh national chair alex Matthews, and got a a full roster on our national board uh this year so congratulations to everybody who uh, won the election and uh looking forward to a, another great year working with restore the fourth yeah and uh congratulations to you for uh you're the national communication chair yeah is that the title yeah I had well uh, communications director. Communications director. What else is going on? Uh, misbehaving apps. What's this about? Um, so some security experts over at the uh, uh, Institute for International Computer uh, Science did a little study of uh, I think it's about five thousand eight hundred or so of the most popular apps targeted kids. These are apps in the you know the Google Play Store, or iTunes that are mm. specifically. Uh, in the children or like teens category, mm. um, specifically apps targeted at individuals who are 13 or under, because mm -hmm. there are some special rules about internet usage if you're 13 or under. Mm. And is it fair to fair to assume that that uh, minors can't uh, can't really consent to uh, to privacy agreements? Right. 
So minors categorically, uh, their consent is, I am not a lawyer, I never play one, I do not pretend to be a lawyer. <laughs> However, my understanding is that minors' consent is basically contingent upon their parents' consent for minors to do something. However, in the United States, and I believe in the EU it's the same, uh, but we'll get into EU privacy laws a little bit later. Mm. Um, if you were 13 or under you can't sign up or use a lot of these services if they collect data that is identifiable on you. So if you're 13 or under and you have a Facebook page, that's a big no-no. Mm. Uh, now, you're not responsible. Facebook is, but nothing's ever really come of this yet. I'm sure there's a reckoning on the horizon, hopefully. Uh, but sort of to get back to our main thread here... Um, of these nearly 6,000 apps that were reviewed, 57% of them uh, were basically breaking this law, um, where they were spying on the child or collecting uh, children's information without parental knowledge or consent, which in an area where people often say, think of the children, uh, well, won't somebody think of the children? With the state of advertise, you know, online advertising and privacy in general, I'm not really surprised at all oh, not surprised at all uh, yeah it's a little scary but i mean i don't have kids but i have uh i have some nephews and some nieces out there and uh they all have devices uh in fact i was on a road trip somewhat recently with my nephews and uh one of them was shocked to find out that his father and i did not grow up with tablets oh <laughs> yeah that was a little <laughs> <laughs> yes, mind blown very much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it sort of reminds me of that shake-up a while ago where one of the Barbies was listening into everything you said and storing it and transmitting it. Oh. Uh, there's, like, some, like, talk-to-your-Barbie toy type thing, and there's a privacy. But, yeah, they were um, listening and sending that data back to the server somewhere so that the Barbie could then respond in a somewhat appropriate way. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Just... Right I guess not use. not not too different than say what okay Google does right yeah. or or yeah yeah except this is targeted at um, like children yeah yeah uh, in some news about various surveillance states around the world uh, the past weeks haven't seen any slowdown in their um, nation states um, sort of march towards a dystopian surveillance state mm -hmm. situation. Uh, yeah. So who's on the cutting edge of... Uh... <laughs> well, as always, it's our friends in China are on the cutting edge. Or, yeah. Um, so this has apparently been going on for a little while, but news sort of broke in the last several weeks um, that there's a new, I guess, government-backed uh, project in China. I mean, in China, I guess, since they're still communist, everything is pseudo-government-backed to some degree. Yeah. Or government-permitted, at least. Um, yeah. Where they're using sort of a lightweight wireless EEG sensors in hats and helmets to detect the emotional state and uh, moods of uh, employees to better tune like production lines or something. Yeah, I had heard about this. Yeah, maybe you can elaborate to what level this is of mind reading these devices well, accomplish. But is it kind of like biorhythmic, like just yeah sense? anxiety or just very basic uh, emotional states or what uh, does it do so i mean some of the more like 
medical uh, slash industrial ones of these uh, can do a lot of stuff. But I'm guessing that these chips can get sort of basic stress levels, maybe levels of mental activity, like are you thinking a whole bunch, like that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And one company was using them in conjunction with VR headsets to train employees specifically to like monitor their stress and anxiety mm -hmm. responses to various sort of situations they would uh, encounter in the work. Yeah. So, I mean, the latter context is during training, right? Yes. Okay. So uh, to be somewhat of a devil's advocate, I mean, that's similar to some techniques I've been hearing uh, for like PTSD treatment and stuff like that, where yeah. in theory, in that context, they're, they're kind of using a VR simulation with detectors to kind of, you know, mental, we'll call, it, call them mental detectors to kind of help these workers form coping skills for tough situations, but they're having them wear these on the job, right? Yeah. It seems to be that there's a, there's a number of companies and groups in China doing this and there seems to be some sort of, it's not uniformly implemented across the board. Mm -hmm. um, and I know they're using it with train conductors as well, which to play devil's advocate, uh, in some places there have been issues with train conductors not being aware or conscious, so I could, or you know, falling asleep or just being distracted or something, so I can see sort of, mm. sort of that kind of check, but that gets into a very slippery slope. Mm. Let's go back to our mission it correlated with that, you know, keeping your thoughts your own. To what extent is this infringing on that idea? Is it really going that far? Or? I don't think you can read somebody's thoughts with these kinds of devices. Mm. Um, but you can definitely get sort of a read on their emotional state or sort of uh, alertness. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, can you pick strength? up if someone's daydreaming or... I imagine you, with some sort of experience or model of, like, what daydreaming looks like, you yeah. probably could. So you could probably get this sort of vague category of thought yeah. that the person is having. But I've also seen where people in a laboratory setting with, you know, uh, we're talking like MRIs and full EEG headsets and all of this, they were able to somewhat accurately reconstruct images that like the person was shown say like an image of a truck and they would focus on it and mm. then they would try and reconstruct that out of the data they were getting from the brain and they were to some degree able to reconstruct that so you know not today not tomorrow but at some point down the road mm. mind reading machines are coming to what extent could this compare to if your employer made you stay hooked up to a lie detector machine eight um, hours a day does this work on similar principles like that sort of it's it's basically if it's what i think it is it's using the electronic it's sort of measuring the electronic signals in the brain from the outside uh -huh. to sort of get an understanding of what's going on and there's different types of like patterns of that signal so you can sort of determine if the person's like awake are they sleeping are they concentrating really hard um, there have been a number of games that have come up recently that utilize this. There was mm -hmm. uh, a number of years ago, I think, I don't know, 2011, 2012, there was a couple of them that came out. Uh, I know there was, like, 
a Star Wars like Jedi force training thing where there's like a <laughs> ball that like is on a thing and it goes back and forth and you sort of like have to concentrate at it really hard and it's a two player game and the other person concentrates really hard and you try and like push the ball to their side. So we've talked about this before. China China's uh, biggest encroachment on privacy these days would be Sesame Credit. In my opinion, in short, this is a kind of Black Mirror-esque. It's similar to a credit rating, but, you know, it's not just limited to whether you pay your bills and uh, how many, how much debt you have. Like, that's what a, we're used to a credit rating being based on. But in China, this, this mandatory rating system that you have to participate in now is based on what else? Uh everything <laughs> everything i'm gonna go everything, everything you do <laughs> yeah uh, it's like i know uh like like uh party loyalty is one of it right party, party political... loyalty like what you buy where you shop who you uh, associate with yeah uh, where you caught jaywalking you know speeding <laughs> yeah um, stuff like that there's yeah. uh in the show notes we'll we'll link to a, a documentary i don't it's not like a full feature-length documentary, but it's uh, maybe 10 minutes, if I remember correctly, of interviews with a couple people in uh, a big city in China about Sesame Credit, which mm -hmm. is this system. It's an interesting look at uh, sort of perspective from people using this system uh, and how they've bought into it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do I get the impression that China China's culture has been kind of a lot less individualistic than what we're used to over here in the States for quite some time, not just in the technological age. Yeah. And do you think that people just uh, kind of more rolling with the flow of this because of that? Yeah, I don't want to, you know, speak categorically about an entire nation of, you know, almost, what, one point something billion people, but... There definitely seems to be more acceptance, but also the government has put in place for, you know, the last uh, long time, a number of policies and measures that really sort of limit individuality and the ability to speak out without repercussion. Mm. So people are used to one point of view, one thought process, you know, mm -hmm. the party mantra. Was this a quote here from uh, from, from this documentary? One, one of the citizens yeah. that said, uh, I feel like in the past six months, people's behavior has gotten better and better. For example, when we drive now, we always stop in front of crosswalks. If you don't stop, you will lose your points. At first, we just worried about losing points, but now we got used to it. So it, it it's... Uh, you know, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't finished watching all the seasons of Black Mirror. And I'm horrible with correlating the names of episodes with, with uh, the plots. But there, wa there was the one that basically yeah. predicted this like only a couple months before this came to be in China, right? Yeah. Where or your behavior would like map, you know, determine this, um, you know, if you almost think of like, being an Uber driver and the rating you get and, you know, how crucial it is to have a, a, a good rating or you, you, you're going to, um, you know, you know, your business will, will suffer. But this is not just how you behave while picking people up in your cards. This is how you behave in every aspect of your life gets rated and accumulated, right? And then, in effect, we have, you know, numerically ranked classes in yeah. China, but I guess if you're a good little boy, you can at least rise 
to the top. Actually, that's a terrifying thought. Um, will this increase social mobility more than uh, some economic policies we have here? That's, uh, I don't know. Huh. Yeah, yeah, is this going to, is Sesame Credit going to uh, open up the Chinese dream? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I, if you're just well behaved, <laughs> you know, here it was about hard work, right? Right. Now it's just about loyalty to country and, and uh, being a nice person. It seems a little easier can, uh, to accomplish, You maybe. can rise up. I heard if you have a lot, if you have a low score, you can't get passports. You can travel out of the country. Uh, yeah. Your kids can't go to a private school, uh, whether or not you can afford it. Yeah, and there was something about train travel and like planes are restricted if you get certain scores or certain penalties. So it's uh, actually very much like that Black Mirror episode where uh, the the woman goes to rent a car but finds her score has fallen, so she gets the the worst yeah. like car. I wonder if they're going to have highways where each lane is a different range of of rating. Huh. Like the the right lane is uh, you know zero to hundred, and the next lane's <laughs> like one hundred one to two hundred. Yeah. So the other uh, the other I kind of uniquely. Um, identifying factor for a person um before there was sesame credit uh god made uh, a little something called dna that kind of uh yeah it's uh it's uh, pretty unique to yeah. just you <laughs> yeah yeah it's, i mean it's not just a, a a number but a uh you know a combination or or code that uh, make makes up who you are but yeah. can now be used to uh, uniquely identify you in many different situations. Obviously, we're uh, used to the criminal context. Right. And, um, you know, with all this uh, personal DNA testing for uh, the sake of genealogy being the new craze, we're, I guess this week we saw a, uh, a big intersection of the, the those two contexts when the long undiscovered Golden State Killer, who uh, committed his crimes when in the eighties, uh, I think it was like seventy six to eighty six. Okay, so yeah, I say we're going I think, on. but I I know my girlfriend listened to a whole audiobook about it, and I was <laughs> I was along for the ride. It was actually really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, not only was DNA information used to right. to catch this guy, but um, it was interesting where they obtained it, right? Yeah, so, of course, at the various crime scenes, they obtained DNA, but um, somewhere along the way, they uploaded some samples to uh, this website, gedmatch.com, mm -hmm. um, and I, I actually just glanced at the uh, privacy policy uh, earlier, mm -hmm. and it was updated today, which I think oh. we'll get to uh, a little bit later as to why that was, Yeah, but uh, they do specifically state and I have it highlighted here, that the DNA provided to them must be one of these several categories. Like, it has to be your DNA, it has to be a person known by you to be deceased, it has to be a person who's granted you authorization, you know, child under your care, or obtained and authorized by law enforcement mm. for, you know, because the person has perpetrated a violent crime, to identify the remains of a deceased, etc., etc., etc. So... My understanding, and this could be wrong, uh, of what they did was they uploaded the DNA they found at one of these crime scenes to this 
service and then they looked for matches and then from there i think they got like a cousin mm. or something and then from there they were able to figure out you know who in that family lived in the area was the mm -hmm. right age was a male etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. and then they were able to stake out his place yeah and get a fresh dna match to confirm it and then he was caught and arrested and that in and of itself is great you know this was a brutal murderer and rapist and i'm glad you know he is in custody and in jail and all that mm -hmm. however with you know this dna ancestry stuff with like uh well gd match 23andme i think ancestry.com has a dna component and there's a bunch of other ones you know mm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be you who uploads your DNA. You know, your cousin could, and through that they could make some connection or mm. something. So, yeah, just to give some context on this uh, GED match site, from what I had been reading, what happened here with the Golden State Killer ostensibly could not happen with the, this commercial services that maybe you're most familiar with. Right. 23 and Me. Um, basically uh how does that work you swab your your cheek or give saliva and you mail it in yeah and i think it's a saliva then they do an analysis of it and uh give you you know kind of a breakdown of what your lineage is supposedly but from what i understand they're not kind of cross those services are not really in the business of cross-referencing you know right. one submission with a nut with other submissions to see you know, kind of doing sort of matchmaking of sorts. Um, they're there just to kind of give you, you know, individuals information. And I believe they had privacy policies where they weren't going to share the DNA with third parties and yeah. they weren't going to use it for any other, allow it to be used for any other purpose. But this, um, this GED match, GED match is, a bit different because it is a kind of crowdsourced clearinghouse of yeah. of uh, voluntarily submitted DNA information, and the primary purpose is matchmaking. You know, with the primary objective being a user submits their DNA, wanting to find who has similar matches in the hopes of finding maybe lost family that they didn't know about. Right. So. That's all well and good, but you know, since anybody can upload and then anybody can look for matches based on what they upload, they can cross-reference it with the other information there. They were able to do this, and I guess to Jed Match's credit, you know, I don't know. You said their privacy policy changed today, but uh, it still allows this to happen. Yeah. yeah, I mean they they had a disclaimer in the privacy policy uh, for some time that said we can't guarantee that you know the the data is going to be you know can't be used for other contexts or you know however some other user might want to you know right. use the matching you know what their yeah. <laughs> another user's intention of of matching could be uh, you know very different. The context than just trying to find lost relatives so and the way it's set up they you know it's not like they can read the mind of what users are looking for right or why they're looking for right so well not yet but yeah <laughs> this was well yeah maybe once they 
maybe they can team up with uh, some Chinese the folks in China. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. Was this fair game for for them to do? Um, you know, and is it uh, is the flip side? Is it really just up to you uh, to just read the privacy policy and decide? You know, do you feel comfortable even with the possibility of that your DNA could then could get used in a cross-reference that's not for just finding family. Yeah, it's a tricky question. And yeah. I think, well, there's some degree of ambiguity, uh, at least in my mind about this. I think uh, the next sort of point in our DNA yeah. uh, discussion is a little less ambiguous. Yeah. Um, so in the United States, uh, when a child is born, they get a, a blood test. That's a heel prick, I believe. They draw some blood. <laughs> Um, and they tested for several dozens of um, disorders or genetic markers to see if the child has any of these conditions that could, um, there's a whole bunch of them that, if treated early, can, you know, be abated or completely cured. Uh, but if not treated, they could lead to severe disabilities or death. So, you know, this is one of the marvels of modern medicine is, you know, a sim single drop of blood or several drops of blood and you can check mm. for all of these things and the appropriate course of action can be taken and, you know, these problems can be completely solved. Mm -hmm. You know, these tests are paid for by the parent either directly or through uh, insurance. Um, and most states will just take this blood, they'll do the test, uh, any leftover blood will be destroyed you know, test results will be added to your medical file, yada, yada, yada. Uh, there are a small handful of states that keep the blood on hand for a number of years in case it needs to be retested or something comes up. Mm -hmm. There are a smaller handful of states that keep the blood somewhat indefinitely. Mm -hmm. um, the one that we have the most information on or has most recently come to light is California, Mm -hmm. where they, after the blood is taken and the test is done, the state of California assumes ownership and control over the blood and adds it to this bio database that they have, regardless, uh, you know, and parents have no say in this. Um, and then the state, from my understanding, sells access to this database to researchers, which, you know, that's pretty great. You have this giant source of stuff and, you know, you can look at it and do all sorts of things. And who knows what kinds of cures and stuff have been come up from this work. However, parents have no ability to give consent. You know, they have no oversight and they're not even notified if, like, their kid's blood is looked at or used mm. in something. And... Uh, I had read that they uh, are supposed to kind of give a disclaimer or a warning when your child's born and you theoretically have the choice to opt out, but that in a lot, a lot of cases, the parents are not, this is not happening and people hmm. are, don't have the information to make a decision. Ah, well, uh, then my mistake, I uh, missed the opt out, but like many things that are opt out. Yeah, I, don't know, I think this is an intersection of several issues where mm -hmm. you have a giant database of very intimate information and you are relying on it's the state, but the state probably doesn't maintain it. They have some third party mm -hmm. uh, who maintains it and who knows how well they anonymize the data or encrypt it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in, in these cases, in terms of opting out or um, voluntarily providing your information, even going back to the 
GEDmatch yeah. site. It almost reminds me of, of something that I've said about social media um, when I've made complaints about um, infringement on uh, people's privacy, you know, surveillance of email and phone calls and uh, things like that, where um, there's a definite context of one-to-one and an expectation of privacy between those communications versus when you post things on Facebook, you know, I always remind people that you're broadcasting. Yeah. So I wonder if I could coin a new term here where, you know, like if you're uploading your DNA to, to GEDmatch, uh, you know, it's almost a form of info bukkake <laughs> <laughs> where like, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to spray your stuff everywhere, then like, <laughs> it's going to get it's, everywhere. It's going to be stuck to the wall. Like, so don't do that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, I'm known for my interesting allegories and analogies. So I mean, that's, that's <laughs> certainly one of them. <laughs> to me, DNA is just like the thing I would want to safeguard the most in terms of like I can't think of anything more personal or private, information-wise, about you and your who you are than your DNA. Yeah, uh, I mean, maybe your thoughts, but they're gonna get those. They're gonna get your DNA. Gonna... <laughs> On that topic of uh sort of data breaches i guess we'll uh touch on two other points um uh, so there was an interesting t-mobile exchange i don't know if you saw this on twitter where um somebody was like hey you sent me my password in the clear and the t-mobile tech was like oh yeah we use super great encryption like don't worry about it and the person was like no, no really this is terrible and t-mobile handled it poorly this is I think T-Mobile Australia handled it poorly. I don't know if yeah. you saw this. Yeah, um, um, yeah. I glanced at this. So, what was what was the deal? Was were they during customer service phone interactions? Were they using passwords as a means of authentication with who they were speaking to? And as part of this, were the customer service reps able to see, you know, part or all of uh, the person's password? And were they asking the, uh, the caller to share their password so they can match it up? Is that what's going oh, on? Or what? This is still up. Uh, I just pulled it up in front of me, and they haven't deleted this out of shame or anything, which is a little upsetting, honestly. What's uh, that? T-Mobile. Uh, oh, Austria? Okay. I thought it was Australia. Uh, I thought so, too. Uh, maybe it's just cut off on the screen. Regardless, um, so this person asks, does T-Mobile Austria in fact store customer passwords in clear text? And then T-Mobile responded with like, hey, uh, the customer service agency, the first four characters of your password, we stole the whole password because you need to log in. And then everybody was like, uh, this is really terrible. And T-Mobile's response was... I don't really was, and I'm just quoting their tweet. Hi, Twitter handle. I don't, or I really do not get why this is a problem. You have so many passwords for every app, for every email account, and so on. We secure all our data very carefully, so there's nothing here to fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just sort of goes on from there. Um, and there's a post on Reddit about it that got a bunch of upvotes that was basically like, well, a T-Mobile data breach is imminent now. So, did... Anybody make heads or tails of you know when they're talking about the first four? Were, were they hashing all the the, the rest? The, I, uh, 
I don't know. Yeah. But their handling of it was, was pretty poor. Yeah. But I mean, um, you know, in any other service or, or system nowadays, you, you wouldn't expect, um, your, uh, the provider on the other end to be able to see your password and, and plainly no. in any way uh you know uh, you'd expect them to have it override to reset your password right and right, then, then yeah. they'd have authentication you, you know real real world authentication procedures uh to go through before they would uh take an action like that but yeah. but i mean i don't know i i don't know if the four pow- pass uh the four character thing is a saving grace or just barely but you know the idea is the question here is is that you're kind of tr- trusting these customer service reps to not look at your password and then do something nefarious with it. Uh, yeah, I guess it's comparable to what how we've handled credit card numbers for quite some time. But <laughs> yeah, uh, also it's 2018, guys. Uh, yeah. Wait, there's there's absolutely no excuse for storing passwords in plain text. And yeah. if you're using passwords to authenticate a user like over the phone and you have them tell you the first four characters of their password, you should probably rethink your whole like scheme because mm. that just sounds terrible. That reminds me of um, the, the MVNO that I use for my cell service when I... Uh, interact with them on their like live support chat and if when they need to make like a major change to my account the way they authenticate and i'm not sure what i think about this they want me to tell them the last three phone numbers i called or received huh that's interesting that's meta creepy is it not yeah i mean of course they have a record of that like yeah but i mean that's just one of those things where the legacy of the POTS telephone system, those records have traditionally been there. Yeah. You know, and most of the controversy about call records and stuff like that typically concern not the fact that they have them, but whether government agencies can access them without a warrant. But I don't know. How do you feel about that? Tell me your last three. Oh, geez. I don't even know. Uh, Uh, let me let me look. Uh, last three I called, I think it was the dude who delivered Grubhub. Mm-hmm. Oh, my friend, because we bought laser tag or I bought laser tag equipment, uh, yeah. and I wanted to get his okay with it because we're going to split the cost. And uh, my mother. Okay. <laughs> well, here's the saving grace slash pain in the ass for me when it comes to that because um, I use Google Voice for my calling, which. Uh. If you're not familiar, um, it kind of uses uh, a parallel application. Like Google assigns you a number, and that kind of rides above your SIM card's actual number, and it just kind of forwards your calls to your SIM card right. number. But you can also forward, you know, your Google Voice number you give out is like, I give it out as my main number. And then I have it forward calls to my SIM number, but also my home phone, my work phone at work um so the tricky thing with that is when i'm i as long as i have google voice installed on my phone when i make calls it's not through the carrier's number yeah it's not going through the carrier's number it it i'll make it give that an asterisk it kind of is it goes it goes through the carrier but it so, under the hood it like transparently dials a proxy number okay that 
is assigned by Google Voice to the number you're really trying to call. Hmm. So, like, with some exceptions, you're not really privy to what that proxy number is, but that's what your SIM card would be showing as dialing, like, as far as the network is concerned. So, like, if they want to know the last three calls I I dialed, I don't really know because they're going to see those, like, proxy numbers that Google Voice generates. So what I had to do last time I had to make some big change, I had to disable Google Voice and then call, like, three random numbers. uh, And then 15 minutes later, once it would be, like, registered and available in their records, call back and or, or go back on their live support chat and then give them those three numbers, <laughs> which, if you think about it, makes me feel a little more like I've got, I accidentally did it and run around this privacy concern of like my my carrier doesn't know who I call because if you, <laughs> in a way, my calls are hashed by the right. Google Voice app huh. with these proxy numbers. So It's interesting. I used Google Voice uh, a number of years ago. Maybe I'll have to uh, take another look at it. Yeah. So I guess we've alluded to it a number of times um, with uh, new EU privacy laws and stuff, but I guess uh, we should talk about the GDPR. A.K.A. how the EU cares about its people more than America does. A.K.A. why you've gotten 600 new privacy update emails in your (laughs) inbox this week. Uh, which is interesting because this law actually went into effect in April of 2016. What? Um, Yeah. They just said they were going to start enforcing it on May 25th, 2018. So companies had like two years to sort of get their their act together. But, you know, a lot of them sort of waited until the last two, three weeks to to do it. Um, I've been remiss in kind of keeping up with this. You know, I had heard the the names and buzzwords and gathered that it was coming um, and I guess had a general sense of envy that the people in in Europe... Um, have their politicians actually looking out for their privacy. But with this, is this almost like HIPAA for all your other data? Yeah, yeah actually, that's a, that's a really good way of, uh, yeah. of putting it. That's, it's I'm like, really glad that you, you dug into this <laughs> a bit, um, so I'm, I'm eager to hear what, what the, yeah. the deets are. Uh, so I'm both, you know, sort of jealous and, uh, that EU citizens get this and, uh, Really glad I don't have to deal with implementing any of this <laughs> compliance because I have uh, I have friends who work at companies that deal with uh, the EU, whereas the mm-hmm. company I work at is strictly U.S. customers. So oh. we have no interactions with this. So we have safely been ignoring all <laughs> okay. of the emails about this topic. It's, it's been pretty great. Um, so I'll try and give a quick rundown of it. But again, I am not a lawyer. I do not play a lawyer on TV. I do not plan mm-hmm. on ever becoming a lawyer. Especially not an EU law lawyer. Yeah, especially not an EU law. <laughs> um, but basically, this law covers EU citizens or we'll just call them entities doing business in the EU mm-hmm. or company or entities collecting processing or storing the information of eu citizens mm-hmm. so, and i always like it to be in the habit of expanding any any abbreviations so we're talk, the eu as in the european union european union yeah it's uh, most of most of europe these days um but basically 
what the this law means is that for a company to collect data on a EU citizen, that citizen must give pretty much line item consent like to the data that is being collected on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the examples I found is that standard, um, this call is being recorded for customer <laughs> service bullshit. Uh, so, so like, could, could we share this with a mouse? Could we share this in a house? <laughs> Could go, so yeah, like, sort of. Uh, you almost have to like this. Uh, this is almost like the Antioch consent policy. Yeah. <laughs> the anti- instead of like, can I touch you here? Can I touch you? You know, can I kiss you? Like, this is literally like that granulated as to. Um. I you know I understand that. Yeah. You're sharing this. I'm sharing this. You're going to do this with it. Every every little thing, and, and so. a lot of that, of course, would be covered in you know these end user license agreements that absolutely everybody reads all of the time, right? Yeah. Um, but getting back to that example of this call is being recorded, um, that wouldn't be enough. Oh. You know, they would sort of have to the call the person receiving the call would have to or placing the call um, would have to be able to give consent or and more importantly rescind it. And if they rescinded consent for that the recording would have to be like that data would have to be deleted mm. um and they couldn't use you not wanting to be recorded as like a reason not to do business with you huh so and yeah and so i mean here in america if you get that kind of boilerplate like this call is being recorded for training purposes um it's not like you know they have a stop button or even something to like purge it later if you say yeah, I don't want to be recorded. And they'll say, "Well, sorry, too too bad, so sad." And over here in the U.S., and that's the case, right? Yeah, I actually I wonder what uh how that sort of works with um wiretapping laws because huh. some states you have to have two party consent, some states you have to have like one party. Like, if there's a yeah. whole patchwork, but I I wonder something to look into. Um, but so then some of the other highlights is a person can request what data an entity has on them and they have to be provided not only with that data but also some documents describing how it's used, who it's shared with, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Huh. Um, you have the right to have your data removed, deleted, erased, and you have the right to remove your data to a different quote-unquote data processor without the data processor interfering. So you could, I don't know, say take all of your data from an ISP and move it to another ISP. Um, and that's just the first example that pops into my head. But hmm. any sort of like entity like that has to be able to provide you with that data and, and you have to be able to take it and go somewhere else with it. Hmm. Uh, additionally, it puts some extra burdens on companies in that the data must be stored in a way where it is not personally identifiable at rest, so it has to be encrypted, tokenized, or pseudo-anonymized. Okay. Uh, which, basically, it's 2018. You should be doing this anyways. You know, like... Uh, but I, I almost want to know the, like, political backstory in, in in terms of, like, they have politicians that, like, understand this. Apparently? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, oh, and in case of a data breach the appropriate EU supervisory authority must be notified within 72 hours. And okay. Each country has its own supervisory authority that all work together. So it, no more so like this privacy thing. officers in a way? Yeah, basically. Wow, what a concept. I, it's shocking uh, to us at least. Um, yeah. But like, you know, 
no more of this, oh, your data was breached three months ago. No, they have to be notified within 72 hours mm -hmm. of, um, you know, obviously this is of them discovering it because these breaches can happen and, you know, they're not discovered for mm -hmm. several months. I wonder, you know, I've I've kind of, you know, wondered or feared. We've talked a lot about China and all the kind of surveillance that they implement. And I've kind of pondered, you know, will just in the in the global economy or, or market per se, will those bad policies kind of trickle out into back on this side mm -hmm. of the pond? But, you know, I wonder if this affects enough uh, services that get used by both uh European customers right. and the United States customers, could we see things kind of trickle up in a good way where, um, you know, they, it's less hassle to design a system or design the, uh, a service where it, it would be right. kind of a pain in the ass to like run things one way in the US and another way in the EU. And like, w could you see us? kind of reaping the benefits or, or this coming I, here just because of... I think we'll reap some benefits. Uh, the big companies like Facebook, Facebook's already trying to do all sorts of things to get out of this. Uh, oh, yeah? Like you know, they're, uh Well, they've already basically sort of announced that they're basically going to have two versions of Facebook. They're going to have Facebook for Europe and Facebook for everybody else. No. Uh, and they were trying to do something with how they, like, where they process and store data so that it doesn't fall under some of the requirements uh -huh. and stuff. I wonder what would happen if I post on a friend overseas on yeah. their wall or what I happens a, then. I have a friend who's a German citizen, uh, so I wonder how that would work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I might have to uh, get them to poke at Facebook and see what kind mm -hmm. of trouble I can cause. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I wonder, is this almost going to be a, uh, you know, like a, a, a specialty, you know, when you're at working at a company that provides services that handle people's private data, you know, like, is this going to open up employment opportunities to in the EU? To Possibly. you know, people that specialize in this and yeah. compliance for uh, and again, what's it's called? GDPR. Yeah, GDPR. Yeah. I have no actual idea what it uh, stands for at the moment. I could General Data Protection Regulations. It's a whole series of amendments, and new laws, and stuff. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and the last big point is uh, sort of like HIPAA, data processing must have some legal basis. So they can't just collect data to collect data. They have to have some sort of uh, demonstrable reason to mm -hmm. collect data. Would that be based on functionality? Like they can't... Functionality, and I mean, if... I imagine if they say, hey, we are offering you this service and we are collecting all this data so that we can sell it so that we can offer you this service for free, that, you know... I that was, would still cut it. Yeah, it would still cut it. Yeah. But it sort of forces them to be a little upfront with the fact that you are, in fact, the product. And yeah. it's not what they are offering. It's yeah. you. Yeah, full disclosure. Full disclosure, you're for sale. <laughs> so in skimming things on the GDPR, uh, I've come across another acronym or buzzword FOSTA, uh, but it, I, I've been a bit remiss in, in kind of digging into what that is, what, what it's all about. Uh, right. So I, I did some digging um, or reading and skimming of articles. Um, but basically back in early April, uh, April 11th of this year, the, um, well, both the House and the Senate passed uh, versions of a bill that has become known as FOSTA, F-O-S-T-A, it stands for um, Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, um, and it was signed into law, and 
basically what this does is it makes it illegal to assist or support sex trafficking, which, uh, given that sex trafficking is a crime already, uh, supporting or assisting it was already a crime, so I don't know if we needed to make it a double special jeopardy crime type mm-hmm. situation, but... What do I know? I'm uh, just somebody here. But that's not really the issue that a lot of people have brought up with it. Um, And these people range from the DOJ had some issues with it. uh, The EFF has had issues of it. Um, uh, Sex workers have had issues with it. Uh, A lot of other people involved in privacy have had issues with it. And a lot of companies, uh, I know Google, Facebook, and them had issues, but they came to some sort of agreement with uh, Congress about it. Um, the, The second part is that it guts Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. Um, mm-hmm. This section is what provides, um, you know, protection from uh, civil liability to online services for what people post. So, you know, you can defame somebody, you can post all sorts of hateful messages on, like, Twitter or Facebook, but Twitter and Facebook are not held responsible for those mm-hmm. messages. Yeah. You know, that is you as a person... Yeah, I'd argue that that's uh, kind of one of, one of the foundational, uh, pr- you know, precepts that made the internet what it is. Right. Um, you know, kind of fostered you know, free exchange. You are recording. Yeah. You know, this idea that I'm providing a platform, you can use this platform to say anything. And yeah, the platform might have some rules about moderating it and we can't, you know, do certain things about it. But uh, basically, you know, we're just providing a platform. We're not held responsible for it. Yeah. But this law changes that in insofar as um, those protections are stripped away. But basically, those protections are stripped away in cases where that speech on a platform might be involved in sex trafficking or something, which... Mm sounds good and noble but it really gets to the issue of now you know you're asking all these platforms to monitor uh, everything that's said on them Mm. and they have to uh, sort of look at it uh, in an adversarial kind of light and Mm -hmm. take action on it um now i mean does it make them criminally or financially liable? I believe it does. Yeah. Okay. So, so they have as opposed to just, just to build further erosions to these things that we take for granted and are how we are able to express ourselves and keep our thoughts our own. And now you have every platform has to basically look through all of its conversations to see if anybody is doing sex trafficking on their platform, which. I don't know. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I, I know Craigslist as part of this cut down, um, ended their um, casual encounters, which was always a source of great memes on the internet. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's just gone, that whole section? I guess, yeah. Wow. I don't know. Um, but, and I always worry that a lot of, a lot of these uh, movements to quote-unquote protect, uh, that there's kind of a gray uh or or just little levels of subtlety where you know how much of it is kind of a sometimes a veiled victorianism yeah where the kind of moral more victorian uh aspects of our society kind of uh is looking to turn back the you know on the face of it they're trying to quote unquote 
protect, but um, underneath they're really kind of trying to turn the clock back on on uh, yeah. sexual revolution. Uh, definitely, and from my understanding of what I've read online, you know, a lot of the the sex workers' objections to this was basically the internet has given people in that line of business a great tool to sort of vet customers and you know stay safe yeah. and now that tool is gone and so, so you got a similar kind of argument that you have about you know back alley abortions right yeah so now you're pushing it back underground and and uh you're arguably creating p potentially more unsafe situations yeah. because uh there's you know <laughs> there's no uber style rating system right and <laughs> For customers and it's one of the more vulnerable because of the social taboo around it and in some areas the illegality of it and also this is one of those instances where you have politicians writing vague laws about technology which never gets abused yeah you know? like you know it's it's yeah. very much like the computer fraud abuse act or the dmca where you have these laws that are just so vague that they can yeah. apply to whatever the prosecution wants them to apply and to. as time goes on and and innovations pop up that uh yeah. give new context that we never would have dreamed of it ends up having uh you know perhaps a a overreaching or unintended effect yeah uh, it's kind of reminds me of um you know something that happened in the early days of the internet um you know and, and i'll kind of put a plug for a really good documentary i enjoy uh, and it's not um, wholly computer or internet related in any way, mm -hmm. but uh, it's uh, um, Call Me Lucky, which I think it's still on Netflix, um, is a documentary about uh, Barry Crimmins, who was um, he, uh, he founded the, the comedy um, scene in Boston in the, in the mid 80s. And uh, a lot of it, uh, the documentary is about that and his you know, uh, coming, coming of age in, in, in that context, but it also goes into, you know, how he was a sexual abuse, uh, victim as a child. Hmm. And later in the web 1.0 days, um, he kind of became a vigilante kind of going on AOL and discovering all of these, uh, oh, child porn, yeah. uh, chat rooms and um kind of went head to head he personally went head to head with AOL uh in congress kind of uh you know during they had hearings about this stuff uh about kind of their um blase uh, approach to the whole thing you know he said like you know well every user gets three strikes you're out you know blah 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 <laughs> um but um i'll be honest i'm still kind of uh uh, conflicted on the whole thing because it's like, uh, you know, I, I don't, um, it, it was kind of tough because it was during a period of the internet where things were kind of metered and yeah. the more, you know, like you, you were charged for how much time you were on. So the more kitty porn was downloaded, <laughs> the more money AOL made. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to say, you know, like, but, uh, you know, my personal, uh, 
you know, like like my inclination is just like you know, data is data, and and the the ISP is just a, a facilitator. I don't know. I don't know that like how I feel about punishing everybody who's even got the most uh, you know secondary of roles in it. You know. Yeah, and this gets into a pretty dicey issue, which I don't yeah. know if we're qualified to get into. But, no, I, I agree. I think yeah. the real issue with the AOL thing was, an, as under the law, an established crime, which I think most people can agree was, you know, child porn is wrong, was brought to their attention, and they were trying not to do anything about it. Because, uh. as you mentioned, it's, you know, it's... They don't want that hassle, and it's making them money. And to a degree, I think that, you know, your ISP shouldn't be looking over your shoulder, but we also live in a society with rules and laws, and if, you know, one of those is violated and brought to their attention, then maybe they should yeah. be required to do something. But that's much more of a sort of after-the-fact kind of thing, and they're not held liable for it. Yeah. You know, the USPS isn't being dragged into court every time they ship drugs. And yeah. I'm pretty sure they're the largest distributor of drugs in the world. Yeah. You know, maybe them and UPS and FedEx, but hey. But that's what I want to differentiate here oh, is yeah. that, um, you know, the USPS will make their best effort to uh, kind of, uh, to, we you know, screen out drugs getting sh yeah. Ship, but if something makes its way through, the USPS isn't punished for it, right? Right, yeah. And is that the, the clincher here? Is that they, they want to, um, you know, there are putative yeah. uh, repercussions for ISPs if something gets through? Yeah. Which, yes, is. Yeah, actually, I think this was the analogy I should have gone with from the beginning. Uh,. <laughs> That that hits the issue right on the head. It's like you know, uh, there are fairly similar situations, and they are treated differently. But because it's technology, and it's this one thing that is sort of taboo in our society, all of a sudden people who don't understand how the internet work can get away with making fairly ridiculous laws about it. Yeah. Or at least Why don't they just farm this issue out to the EU Parliament, <laughs> and then they like. Why don't we just let them make our technology laws and they can, you know, work on, you know, I don't know. I mean, foreign Congress policy, is, which we're awesome at also. Congress has done so well uh, outsourcing everything. Maybe they should just outsource yeah. uh, their legal decisions. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we'll get some good <laughs> privacy laws out of it. Um, you know what I want to talk about is um, these photocopiers. Oh, okay. You know, CBS kind of did some investigative reporting where... I'll be frank, I didn't even realize this. Uh, apparently, every photocopier, at least, you know, uh, above a, a certain caliber, you know, I assume, you know, my my little Epson 3-in-1 in the back room can be a photocopier, but I assume it doesn't do this. But these, you know, your big honking Xerox machine that you're used to at work, since 2002, they've all had hard drives that just cumulatively store everything that, hmm. that they scan. Yeah, uh, this this just sparked a moment of recognition. Uh, I remember there was an episode of Burn Notice uh, where they like steal some documents by stealing the hard drive out of a photocopier or a fax machine or something. Yeah, but uh, sorry, go on. Why would you 
it's not like photocopied documents need to be cached for easy reuse or <laughs> are there features like that like why the hell would they put I imagine in a large corporate environment, maybe you'd want the ability to like. Isn't that why you run a print server? If you really like, yeah, and yeah the, that's why I stopped. I sort of realized that's why you run a print server. But 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 that that's the important part. You buy a piece of machinery, where it's just kind of uh, remembering everything that it ever sees out of the box, as opposed to you know, if if I run a company and I want to keep a, uh, you know, be able to audit how the machines were used or what documents went where. Yeah, I guess. Um, I would think that would be on me to set up a print server. But, like, I don't know. Is there something I'm missing about this? Is it, I, I mean, I can think of a number of industries where you'd want uh, a paper trail so that it could be audited. Um, yeah. Like, healthcare, legal come to mind. But... Uh, yeah, that seems like sort of an add-on feature versus a built-in feature like what you were describing. Yeah, but I don't know. Do, do I have even more suspicion about this? That is this there for forensics? For you know, uh, is uh, you know, Rico and and Xerox and Kyocera like are they quietly playing nice with law enforcement or the government? Possibly. Um, so basically, CBS went down to some warehouses in New Jersey and bought some used photocopiers and just pulled the hard drives out of them to see what they could find. And they found all sorts of shit, did they not? <laughs> of course um, they did. Of course they did. So when they went shopping for these used copiers, they picked out four machines based on their price and the number of pre. Uh, the number of pages that were printed and um they unpacked and and plugged them in um up until that point i guess they had no idea you know where these copiers came from what they would have on them um except for uh one of them apparently came from uh, the new the buffalo new york police sex crimes division and uh that one still had a physical document in the on the glass Wow. So they didn't even have to go to the hard drive. Uh, but um, once they pulled the hard drives out, uh, they found hundreds or ten, tens of thousands of documents. Um, so, for instance, on the sex crimes unit photocopier, there were detailed domestic violence complaints and a list of wanted sex offenders. Um they got another machine from the Buffalo Narcot Narcotics Unit where they found a list of targets in a major drug raid. Uh, they got yet another from a New York construction company which had design plans for building near Ground Zero in Manhattan. Um, also had 95 pages of pay stubs with names, addresses, and social security numbers of their employees. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't know how lucrative this would be, but the, there were a number of, uh, copied checks. Um, but the, the, the real disturbing one was, uh, they got one machine from a health insurance company, uh, where they got 300 pages of individual medical records. Oh, geez. And that's. Including everything from drug prescriptions to blood test results to even people's cancer diagnoses, 
So it's like I feel like you know what what focus there is on um, you know maintaining HIPAA privacy and um, in more modern computer systems and networks and databases, you know, on that level, I feel like there is a lot of focus, uh, you know, especially in like healthcare industry on keeping tabs on where the information goes, but you never think about, you know, there's somebody in that company walking from their desk to the copy machine and making them, you know, doing their quote unquote TPS reports. And like, you know, that still goes on, uh, even in a modern office and to think that this is kind of living, going through this back channel, uh, that lives inside these machines. And then they're just floating around in there, obviously unencrypted. Um, naturally. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. A lot of these more complex copiers you deal with today are, are, uh, you know, network devices, you know, like I can, the one I have at work, I can, uh, email a PDF instead of printing. Hmm. So, um, right from the device. So, you know, are these hard drives that are inside, are they, could they be accessible through an ethernet connection or, but I mean, uh, no one's really spoken to, you know, in the industry spoken to this other than, I guess, uh, some of the manufacturers have, you know, mildly made statements about, you know, like I'm sure, I'm sure we're talking about the the bylines of the uh, the, the the copier manual somewhere where it says <laughs> yeah. like uh, you know you are responsible for like clearing this hard drive before you sell it, dis- yeah, yeah, sell it or otherwise dispose of it. I mean, I guess it's kind of the same uh, precautions you would expect to take these days if you sold a, a PC to somebody. You know, obviously you're gonna want to wipe the hard drive but um i don't think it's that obvious to to most people that you have to be treating these photocopiers in the same way i don't think it is and i think that uh actually raises a very real problem with the internet of things you know yeah uh, as we connect more stuff to the internet you know everybody sort of just Oh, we're works. talking 2002. That's true. Uh, so this was not Internet oh, yeah. of Things. This was that a, was even barely Web 2.0. Yeah, you know, and like I'm trying to think of that would have been like I know, I know, a, you know, a, a, a two, you know, a binary bitmap image is you know relatively small, but even in 2002, I'm just like, how did they afford to put hard drives that could hold? everything or maybe it was just like the last x yeah number i'm sure it started off small because i remember in um 2007 uh august ish september somewhere around there i bought a 750 gig hard drive and that was like 130 bucks yeah no but in everything i've read about this no one no one is answering why these are here what's the function of these hard drives i yeah I, I imagine, you know, as we've said... Why would you do this, you know? <laughs> in, like, an audit environment, it makes sense. But just as a general state of being, it seems excessive and, like, a $100 add-on. Like, you could just skip that and, you know, drop the price by 60 bucks or something, which could be a nice 
marketing point. <laughs> like, our product's cheaper than the competitors. Moving on, the same vein of companies uh, mishandling our information and kind of <laughs> letting it all hang out. Um, uh, there's been a little more revealed about the infamous Equifax uh, breach that uh, happened a month or two ago. Um, so, you know, the the tally is still at 146 million people, which is half of America. Half of America. It it looks like the nature of what was uh, re- there's been more a elaborated on, like what kind of stuff was breached, and that's kind of become more scary. Um, yeah, it, it looks like uh, we're talking about um, people's, uh, you know, not only their names and addresses, but their social security card uh, or social security numbers, um, you know, credit cards, other payment cards, um, and also looks like 38,000 driver's licenses and passports. 3,200 passports were uh, were leaked because I mean I'm just submitting for a loan going through the loan process yet again and you know I had to give the guy my license and he had to swipe it through his little business card swiper and mm. goes into the database with all of my other debt uh, application documents right. and then um, you know they run that credit check with Equifax or the other big two and um you have no idea where this stuff is going and it's like you know even if you trust your bank they don't have much power to protect what happens to your stuff any more than you do yeah in a lot of ways yeah once once it's out of their hands it's it's out of their hands yeah but this has just become the the de facto authority of uh, that you use to decide who's credit worthy and who's not. Um, so in other news, uh, former FBI director James Comey, uh, he, as you know, he released his, his book, uh, sort of a memoir, I believe. But uh, while the focus was on the passages uh, regarding his brief time with the Trump administration, uh, he, he tackles a, a number of issues in his book and, you know, a number of details a number of experiences uh during his career and uh i believe uh uh he has uh, some not so nice things to say about apple and google yeah so in it he he's quoted as saying that uh apple and google's efforts to sort of promote encryption in their devices and their services drove him crazy and this is uh, not an uncommon refrain from him and his uh, contemporaries and lackeys, um, where they complain about Apple or Google or somebody using encryption and how it's making their job harder as criminals go, and I'm doing big air quotes over here, uh, they go dark. Mm-hmm. And uh so this sort of ties into some other news that came out recently um there had been some stories about how over seven thousand criminal cell phones or cell phones involved in crimes were recovered that had been using encryption mm-hmm. well it turns out that number might have been inflated a little bit oh really um you know by 550 percent which uh that's 
550%. No, that's not a rounding error. That's not even like... How? It's orders of magnitude. How did they contrive such a thing? I mean, where, where uh, and where were in, in what uh, venue or context were they making this claim? Um, so in several public statements, they had said, uh, basically, you know, oh, it's becoming harder and harder. Uh, in fis- uh, so, you know, they'd claimed that in the fiscal year of 2017 that they were unable to access the content of. Uh, 7,775 devices using, quote-unquote, appropriate and available technological tools, uh, even though they allegedly had the legal authority to do so. Um, But it turns out that this number wasn't quite as high. Um, You know, a new estimate puts that number at 1,200 um, the, the difference could really just be that, like, a lot of those phones were locked, which isn't really there encrypted. It's just, you know, whoever had the key code or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, uh, didn't give it to them for whatever reason. Um, or that's giving them the benefit of the doubt, which I should probably stop doing. They probably just straight up lied to make their point and get some sympathy. Mm-hmm. Um, cause... This is an ongoing pet peeve of theirs for whatever reason. They want one plus one to equal three and mm-hmm. refuse to acknowledge that math is a thing and physics are a thing and you just can't have what they want despite mm. how hard they try. Or can they? Uh, IBM is saying uh, <laughs> in the near future, one, one plus one could equal two or three or four all at the same time. Well, <laughs> uh, as we enter the brave new world of quantum computing. I mean, that's a whole other beast uh, uh, which i'm not going to try to explain because i it's the kind of thing where when i read up on it i i understand it for like five seconds and then the, there's a number of good videos and things that sort of yeah i guess explain it i don't really have mm-hmm. a grasp on it i i wrote uh, a little program that mm. does involve IBMs. cats and boxes I yeah hope. And, and poison <laughs> <laughs> uh if you're not familiar with what we're talking about uh Go look up Schrodinger's cat. But yeah, Schrodinger's cat uh, relates to, to quantum physics, and that's the basis for the coming age of quantum computing that uh, IBM is warning everybody about. Because uh, you know, I think we, even if you don't understand quantum physics or, or quantum computing at, a, at its base level, um, I think at least you and I understand that. Um, it, it it is going to be a huge paradigm shift for encryption because yeah. uh, the majority of conventional encryption techniques are, uh, you know, predicated on on the idea that it it, it would take a conventional computer uh, years or decades to yeah. uh, you know, crack the the, the math. But because certain types of calculations can be done, you know, extraordinarily in parallel yeah. by a quantum computer, uh, it would render a lot of the, the the encryption methods that we use today uh, useless. Am I correct? That's yeah. That basically, uh, yeah, um, quantum computers offer for certain types of operations orders of magnitude more power. Um, and mm-hmm. by using a lot of interesting properties of what they're calling qubits. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, IBM has uh, a couple 
quantum computers. You know, they're not very big. They're not very powerful. But, uh, I mean, computers weren't very big or very powerful in the 50s. So, But they're painting this picture where, yeah. you know... Um, know it's, it's coming. Yeah. It's, but they're painting a picture where it's going to almost, like, show up at the doorstep one day. And uh, just one day you're... It's going to be a slightly more of a yeah. ramp up, in my opinion. Yeah. What do I know? Uh, somebody might make a breakthrough tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but it's coming, and it's not that far off. Yeah. You know, it's it's probably longer than some people want, and probably closer than everybody fears. Yeah. So, I mean, what it, if we rattle off a couple... Uh, uh, you know, three-letter acronyms that would be conventionally based encryption uh, that would be uh, thwarted by this. So we uh, PGP, uh, SSL. Well, SSL uh, probably AES. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, the various SHAs, which aren't really encryption, but hashing, but they can be defeated. Um, I'm not really an expert. This is not an area that I'm really up on, but yeah. most conventional encryption is weak to this. There are certain new fields of encryption that appear promising, but mm -hmm. without a fully functional quantum computer, I guess, you know, you have to rely on the pure mathematical implementation, which the pure mathematical implementation will work, but until somebody puts that into software, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's a yeah. little bit dicey. I, I was reading uh, Lattice Field... Yeah, uh, encryption is. Uh, I had never heard of this until recently, uh, and I don't pretend to have any understanding of it. I still have to kind of do a bit of uh, reading, perhaps while uh, augmented with mind-opening substances, <laughs> uh, to kind of get it. But um, my understanding is this: this is a quantum-proof method of encryption, and they're saying move your data now. But where are you going to move it? I mean, there's no quantum uh, compute. There's no lattice-based systems currently, are there? I don't know. Uh, no, but I'm sure IBM would be glad to sell you a service to move your data to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, they're not wrong in that it is coming. It will be a thing, and it is going to change. Uh, well, I don't want to say everything, but it's going to change like everything. Mm -hmm. So some things never change, and uh, uh, Google. Kind of snooping into data that you didn't expect and that uh -huh. arguably had no right to. Someone discovered that the uh, the Chrome browser, uh, at least the Windows implementation, was kind of quietly scanning local files with. Uh, it, it it has some malware uh, scanning capability built into the the browser, which would make sense because yeah. the, you know there's plenty of JavaScript and other goodies out there on the web, but I think most people would assume that uh, such a thing would just be scanning um, stuff that's, uh, you know, coming down from the internet, but... Right, and I think, I think the issue here is more that they didn't announce this, they didn't tell, they didn't really publicize this, you know, yeah. it was probably in some change logs, there were some notes about it, there were some comments on some developer boards and whatnot, but it wasn't really marketed as a feature, and here they have this uh, ubiquitous tool, and all of a sudden it's scanning everybody's files and stuff, and we sort of have to take their word that they are just sending the hashes to some service mm -hmm. to analyze to make sure it's not malware. Now, 
if it's just that, uh, that's that's one thing. Um, but this is Google we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But also, in light of um, the Kapersky uh, Labs debacle uh, last year with the NSA, where Kapersky Labs got their hands on some NSA uh, tools, and it looks like, at least the last I heard, that the way they did that was... Um, they were on an NSA contractor's laptop. He had Kapersky's antivirus. I'm probably butchering their name, whatever. And they, the tool didn't recognize these, thought they were suspicious, uploaded them to their database to be analyzed, and then they got their hands on some nation-state-grade spyware, mm. which I guess everybody was a little uncomfortable with. Because then, of course, they turned it over to the Russian government. Mm. And speaking of the Russian government... Being uncomfortable, uh, they uh, Russia's apparently uncomfortable with uh, end-to-end encrypt- encrypted chat apps such as uh, Telegram. Uh, they've already passed, I guess, w- what we could consider a backdoor law. Yeah, uh, the um, software manufacturers are supposedly required to turn over keys, encryption keys, to the government so that they can kind of get into communications on a given service uh and telegram as you know is end-to-end and the nature of end-to-end encryption is such that uh the intermediary the server in the middle does not have the keys to decrypt messages it's just uh passing hash data and then the, the clients are decrypting it at each end so they don't have said key to to give, so uh, apparently the Telegram app has been pulled from app stores in In Russia. Russia. And we've seen this in countries like Iran, but Russia, while not free and open and loving like other countries, is is at least a little bit more on the world stage than Iran and a little bit more involved in the world country. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, the ubiquitous joke has to be made in Soviet Russia, encryption spies on you. Mm. (laughs) Sad but true. So then there was a little bit more on the. Um, I don't know if we talked about this before, but well, it's not the first time uh, ICE has stormed somebody's place without a warrant and mm-hmm. demanded some data that they probably didn't have any right to, or they definitely didn't have any right to. Let's not uh, give them too much benefit of the doubt. Um, but this was an upstate New York farmer who's saying that ICE officers uh, stormed his farm without a warrant, cuffed him, and took his phone. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, I was having a conversation about this the other day. I believe most of New York State's within the 100-mile special zone. Yeah, well, we're here in in Albany, and I was looking at a map today, actually, and it looks like most of New York State is within the quote-unquote 100-mile perimeter of the border that's uh, been nicknamed the the unconstitutional zone, and there's kind of a small square around Albany that where we're... Uh, we we still remain free somehow, um, um, but you know this is uh, we're talking about this hundred mile zone from the border uh, where uh, borders and customs and I guess it would include ICE uh, can yeah. um, uh, you know they have more latitude to do uh, random searches and and seizures and um, your your typical civil liberties that you expect is kind of uh, murky, uh, an area of the country that ultimately is home to about 
two thirds of the entire population. Yeah, it's it's something insane like that. And you have whole states like all of Maine, uh, nearly all of New Hampshire, all of or no, all of New Hampshire, nearly all of Vermont, all of Massachusetts, all of like Rhode Island, all of Texas. You know are covered by these zones and yeah we've talked about it before and we'll talk about it again but and while it's been you know it it's a big deal cl- close to the mexican border i've experienced these random checkpoints on uh i-87 on the north way yeah uh by the border patrol you know a good 80 miles anywhere you know nowhere near the border and they're just stopping people randomly um and uh, you know, I, papers, please. Uh, yeah, in this case, you know, we've had a number of instances where we've been seeing ICE officers getting pretty overzealous. Uh, you know, not only um, this this farmer in Rome, New York, who, uh, you know, had his house stormed and they, they took away one of his workers, I believe. He, uh, yeah. But they refused to display any paperwork and, uh, you know, um, but even just a few weeks prior to that, um, there was some, uh, cell phone video going around, uh, from an Amtrak train that was stopped in Syracuse where, uh, ICE officers boarded the train and, and just, you know, asked for ID of several, uh, several riders before they would let the train proceed. So, um, you know, there's, there's a degree of, uh, racial or racist profiling here too because there's a story recently of um some women in wisconsin who were i don't know if they were on a trip or or what the deal was but they were in wisconsin and they were at a store and uh, a nice officer overheard them speaking in spanish to each other and demanded paperwork and sort of hassled them a bit so so um the uh, Department of Homeland Security is looking to form a database of journalists uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, they are looking, they've been putting out a uh, RFP or what have you for a contractor to build what they're calling a media monitoring service, which would store lists of journalists, editors, correspondents, social media influencers, and bloggers. Uh, and be able to be searchable for content and sentiment. And the DHS uh, claim it's just a standard practice of, quote, monitoring current events. But uh, it strikes a uniquely un-American nerve in me to hear that, to be... Yeah, and this this reminds me of a lot of the policies undertaken by governments that... Uh, you know, people have been forced to flee. Um, to get a little personal, uh, my grandmother fled uh, the fascists in Spain when that happened, and uh, they chose to go to Cuba, where they then uh, fled the communist revolution for various reasons. But you know, so if your family's taught you anything, it's always have a bag packed. Uh, yeah, you know, I have a backpack with a laptop <laughs> and it's sitting near me. Uh, <laughs> you always got your bug out bag. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things these governments like is lists of people. And yeah. e- even in a you know, perfectly democratic, free society, I'm just, I'm wary of such lists. I don't, the the temptation for them to lead somewhere bad is too great, I think. Especially if it's a list of journalists or something. That's already <laughs> been going pretty far down that hill towards bad times. So even with all of these stories that we've already covered, we haven't even reached the top scandals of uh, 
this last month or two. So Amazon um, is apparently getting into the facial recognition business, namely for law enforcement. You know, this has long been a, you know, just last episode or two, we've talked about how this has been deployed in China and how we worried that, you know, a few years from now, maybe that it could trickle out to America, these systems that uh, could, you know, automatically uh, analyze closed circuit cameras, uh, maybe police body cameras, uh, all of these video sources for, uh, looking for faces and then kind of constantly cross-referencing them with uh, databases of people's m- mugs. And um, it looks like they're trying to get into that market. Um, they've already, they, they have this product called Recognition, and it's uh, spelled R-E-K. Uh, <laughs> get wrecked. Yeah, exactly. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know that we have uh, incredible detail about how the system works, but um, they've already pushed it onto a, a couple customers, such as the Orlando Police Department, uh, Washington County Sheriff's office in Oregon. Um, but uh, there, there's been an immediate outcry by a, uh, a number of organizations, including us at Restore the Fourth. Uh, the ACLU put out a petition pe- about this. And yeah. They sent out a letter. And, yeah, Amazon. a coalition letter kind of urging um, that, uh, uh, the, you know, they should not be going down this path, um, you know, and, and a number of, uh, you know, had a media outlet or two reach out to us because, um, wanted our take on what we see dangerous about this, you know, and, and this was, this touched me not personally, but just very locally here because, uh, you know, I, I, as part of the community, uh, committee that I'm involved with here in Albany, uh, you know, we, we had a hand in forming the policy for our police department's uh, body cameras deployments. And uh, we noted that there was strangely nothing in it to address biometrics, you know, including facial recognition. Right. And uh, <laughs> when I, when I brought that up, I was, I was told by the brass, well, we're not going to write policy for technology that doesn't exist yet. And then further in the conversation, they said, "Oops, well, maybe in 10 years when something like this comes to be, like, we'll, we'll revisit it. And I laughed, you know, even at, that was a year, year and a half ago, and even then I kind of laughed in their face. <laughs> so to go off on a bit of a tangent here, I think this is sort of an important thing um, that some of the people making these policies don't even realize what can be done and what is out there and where they might be more willing to listen to concerns or even take proactive steps. Uh, they just are not aware that these technologies exist or, you know, this stuff still seems like sci-fi to a lot of people, mm-hmm. but uh, we're living in the future now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we... We have better communicators than they did on any of the Star Trek shows yeah. in, in our pockets, and we take them completely for granted. Yeah. 
Uh, so and, and and you know somebody you're dealing with an old person when they uh, complain that uh, homeless people have them. Yeah, <laughs> like but, it's some like grandiose luxury, you know, uh, at this point, and not you know ubiquitous and and yeah, cheap. I mean, you can get. Uh, yeah, you can considered. get a cricket phone for fifty bucks. Yeah, you can get one three yeah. even less from uh, Verizon. Yeah. They just tack it onto your bill. And let's face it, in you know, in the twenty first century, uh, you know, having a cell phone, a smartphone, is like having a Swiss Army knife. You know, yeah, it's kind of a uh, survival tool in, a, in an information age. Yeah, I went out to uh, a restaurant the other day, and they asked for a cell phone number. And my girlfriend quickly responded, but I was a little taken aback. And, you know, had she been in the bathroom, the the, the whole getting a reservation at this restaurant might not have gone so smoothly. Um, mm. It's so, a brave new world that yeah. not a lot of people recognize. But, you know, what, in, in uh, you know, I get to do an interview about this, and uh, cool. I noted that... Um, you know, with these facial recognition systems in the hands of law enforcement, uh, it, it kind of, it, it really goes contrary to the spirit of a free society and the Fourth Amendment in that um, you're creating this dragnet or a perpetual lineup where, you know, in, in America, you're supposed to be able to live your life freely uh, by default without any expectation that the government is watching you until you know uh, until there's a specific impetus for them to do that and even then you're presumed innocent until proven guilty yeah but we're setting up something where everyone's going to be watched all the time and you know we've already seen this uh to an extent with uh license plate readers and then those had a gps in tacked onto it and now we have you know multi-year databases of where every vehicle has been and, and when and uh now these systems are going to just extend that to pedestrians i just had a uh, a thought on civil disobedience um if you live in one of these municipalities that keep license plate reader data on all of your cars Next time you lose your car, you just call up the cops and ask them where it is. Mm -hmm. You know, you start getting people doing this all the time. They might start questioning their <laughs> obligation to keep this data. Yeah. Or they might tase you or shoot you, depending <laughs> on your skin color. Um, so uh, use at your own risk. I, but So uh, to sort of circle back to the Amazon thing, um, there was a news article that broke fairly early today on the 24th of May. Um, so it turns out uh, th this woman reported to um, Cairo TV, but it has been picked up a number of other places, uh, and Amazon has commented on it, sort of uh, validating its authenticity. Um, and sh uh, this is a family from Portland, Oregon, uh, who have Alexa, Amazon's Alexa devices in um, all of the rooms of their house. Uh, presumably not the bathroom, but, you know, to control lights and heat and stuff like that. You know, very uh, Internet of Things, smart house, uh, disaster. Um, and so, you know, it's recording audio as it is wont to do to listen for its keywords. Um, but it turns out that it recorded some audio that was private um, conversations. You know, nothing intimate. Uh, I believe a husband and wife were talking about hardwood flooring. 
and it got sent to somebody who was in Seattle, Washington, who was on this family's uh, contact list. Uh, so, an Amazon sort of, you know, alerted them to this, I guess, or um, or somebody did, but it it points to an issue when you have sort of always on, always listening devices. Um, so yeah, that, you know, they are listening, uh, and it's sort of a, one of these dark UI patterns in that you don't really, you know, you interact with them in one way and you expect them to work in that one way. But when, you know, they're sort of doing something else behind the scenes. So yeah, it looks like they're, it was a bug or somebody got hacked or whatever it was, but this should be taken sort of as the grain of salt to take with Internet of Things things or as a warning about Internet of Things things is that, you know, they are listening and the data goes places. Um, like all of these, uh, you know, these anecdotes where, you know, a parrot gets somebody in trouble for repeating... Right something they said in their purview, you know, it's, a, it's that to the 10th power. Cause... Yeah. Now we're paying to have that parrot always <laughs> listening to us. Um, yeah. and I'm sure there'll be more on this, uh, as, as things develop, um, sort of just came to light this morning. So we will see. So um, guess what? Uh, n- none of what we talked about still is, is arguably the biggest scandal for this episode. Uh, have you heard about this uh, Securus Technologies uh, debacle? I mean, uh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, uh, this company, I, I guess by way of an intermediary, um, had access to all of the course location data from all the major cell, prof- cell phone providers. So that w- what that meant is they could uh, correlate any cell phone number uh mm. to you know not gps location but you know uh, your rough location in terms of what tower you connected to when so you know if you were in the the general radius of a given tower they they uh could access when when you were in that area um but uh, you know they had marketed this service you know and how how they got the the back end access from the cell phone companies that I would like to know. Um, but they marketed this service to help find parolees and uh, Alzheimer's patients and things like that. Um, but because there was no checks and balances and there was no security, uh, cops and I think just about anyone could query it willy-nilly to find anyone's location. Um, and apparently a... Uh, an ex-sheriff in Mississippi uh, County, Missouri, did just that. Corey Hutchinson was his name. Uh, uh, he, for for three years, he used this system to track a local judge, uh, a bunch of other officers, and uh, a number of people that he just had surreptitious interest in. This really leaves me vindicated for all of the, uh, you know, outlandish steps I take. Uh, towards my smartphone privacy. You know, my wife laughs at me because, um, you know, I I bought a 
uh, SIM card in cash from an MVNO. Uh, I pay for my refills every month in cash. Uh, my real name is not associated with the SIM card. Uh, on top of that, I have a Google Voice number, which is my functional number that everybody has while my SIM card is obscured. Uh, you know, and if you're familiar with Google Voice, um, even the uh, the cell phone provider does not have records of the actual numbers that I call. Uh, they're kind of, I won't say hashed, but they're somewhat masked by uh, these proxy phone numbers that um, uh, Google Voice generates. And, uh, you know, why do I take all this extra care? If you asked me a year ago, why do you do this? I don't know that I could dream up a scenario like this, hypothetically, but... Um, I just know that I'm connecting to uh, a given tower uh, wherever I am. Um, I'm uh, sending GPS data potentially. Um, and, you know, I wanted to do my best that if any kind of tracking like this were to occur, that they were tracking a John Doe and, uh, <laughs> you know, at least take the, the meaningful information of who the subject is out of it. So, but for anybody who has a regular, you know, contract-based cell phone and their numbers on the bill, uh, this system can be used to find where you've been uh, whenever. I don't know. I'm curious how the average Joe would feel about this because apparently you know, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal was big enough that we have to drag somebody into to testify before Congress, but... Um, you know, it seems like whenever cops are doing it, it it's, uh, you know, if Zuckerberg's doing it, we're going to get angry. But on the whole, if, if law enforcement is doing it, they, you know, outside of this room, the opinion seems to be that they somehow know better or, you know, we're not going to yeah, they, try to impede them. or They sort of get a pass on this, which uh, I think brings us back to a number of topics we talked about earlier where it's like, you know, even if these systems have, you know, legal bearing or whatever, uh, there still needs to be transparent oversight because you have, you know, one cop who has a bad breakup and decides to stalk his ex because he's confident she's cheating on him. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, whether or not she is isn't really here or there, and his use of some sort of, you know, facial recognition software to find her or this tool to track her cell phone is... A, completely unacceptable, B, uh, blatant misuse of power, and it's a complete violation of her Fourth Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. um, in this hypothetical instance, I'm not saying that this has happened, though I wouldn't be surprised if it has. Um, a new bad actor on the scene, I hadn't heard of this Securus firm, but uh, they're apparently anything but secure. <laughs> they're certainly not securing us. Well, uh, uh, But uh, yeah. apparently... Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if the, their API was like completely wide open or uh, their website was, uh, not locked down at all. Well, and beyond what this cop was doing, so a hacker was able to, uh, kind of do a data dump. Of yeah. Some and of get this. a bunch of usernames and passwords type situation. Um, it also, uh, so I went and I poked at it, um, after the story broke because I was like, Hey, this, this is, you know of interest to me and I saw that they had a free sign up for their API and I looked at it. I didn't do anything with it because I have 
enough going on with uh, work and my own side projects that I have piled upon myself. Um, but it looks like, uh, at least when I looked at it, you could sign up for a free API and build a little project that you know you could use to track cell phones. Uh, and they're, of course, have a standard boilerplate of, you know, you have to have permission, you can't use this for stalking, you know, make sure you're authorized, yada, yada, yada. But they don't really provide any mechanism to enforce that, and they also don't have seemingly any uh, oversight or accountability to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so getting on to a different topic, uh, somebody who normally uh, doesn't shirk their duties, uh, Open Whisper, Whisper Systems, who's behind uh, the signal messenger that... Uh, I know I use and you use and mm -hmm. I'm sure a number of our listeners use and we're it's kind of the gold standard for end-to-end yeah. -end encrypted chat. We're um we're big fans of it here. Uh and recently there've been a number of vulnerabilities announced for it. Now, uh off the bat I'm going to say that these vulnerabilities were all in the desktop client. Mm -hmm. Um this is a very important distinction because uh, the sort of the build for your smartphone is different than the underlying build for, you know, Mac OS X, Windows, Linux, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like in there were some vulnerabilities that sort of uh, were across the board. Um, and I won't really get into too many technical de uh, details of it, but there was some, some one with uh, improper rendering of HTML led to a vulnerability. Um, and then specifically in Mac OS X, there was a vulnerability where um, you could look back in your notification log and see messages, even if they had been, the notification had already been dismissed and it was a disappearing message. Uh, one of the issues here, uh, in my opinion, is that they're using Electron as uh, the basis for their desktop uh, signal app. Now, mm -hmm. Electron is a Node.js framework. Um, that allows you to build cross-platform apps very easily. And it is, uh, you know, I'm going to give credit where credit's due because it's a project I couldn't handle on my own. Uh, and it's a very impressive project. Uh, it's really great for getting a minimum viable product up. Mm -hmm. You know, you can spin up a web app very easily. Basically, if you know how to write some HTML and JavaScript, you can do it. Um, what it does is it takes basically the Chrome rendering engine and JavaScript runtime, which is included in Node.js. And it uses that to basically spin up sort of a web browser to run your sort of web app, mm -hmm. which means that it has a lot of moving parts and there are a lot of potential issues with it. And my God, is it a memory hog? No. You know, I, I really respect every piece of work that uh, the Open Whisper, Whisper System people have put out. And they've done a pretty wonderful job of responding to these vulnerabilities, but... I'll always take the people who are trying to protect us yeah. first over the people who are trying to surreptitiously Definitely. steal our data. Definitely. So, <laughs> uh, basically, I just wanted to say, like, thanks to them, but, you know, may maybe don't use Electrum. But I also understand they have a very small team, and they are trying to put out a product across multiple platforms. So yeah. The desktop client has kind of a... A squirrely uh, history to yeah. it, you know, and I don't know what, in terms of these security issues, what would be better or worse. It, it originally started out just as a plug-in for the Chrome browser, it, and right. later they started offering it as a standalone application for Windows and 
uh, Mac OS and, and Linux as well. But uh, I know I know at least a couple people that, that scared off. They didn't want to run it within Chrome. Um, and I can understand that. But is, uh, you know, like in this context, uh, what's your opinion? Do you, was the Chrome framework so, better or worse than the Electron framework? Or I think Electron is better. Yeah. Even though Electron uses Node.js, which uses the Chrome JavaScript runtime, it is not a full-fledged browser that is connected to Google. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think it's better. Uh, I think it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully they can continue to get the funding. Uh, they need to continue to improve their products. Now, this was always a smartphone-centric app. Yes. And they made the desktop client... It is literally a kind of an add-on to yeah. that uh, smartphone app to the extent that you, you have those. to link yeah. your desktop client to your existing app on your phone. And, and as far as I know, if you don't have a smartphone, there's not really an easy, straightforward way to start using Signal Messenger exclusively uh, on your desktop. I don't know if it's somebody we both know, but somebody I know was able to get it working on a tablet by, they got a Google yeah. Voice number, they got the Google well, Voice Underline the, the word straightforward. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know so, there were a couple steps involved. I, the, the other opinion I wanted to get from you is if they had, if they had designed this out of the gate to be uh, device agnostic, um, do you think that these issues would still be coming into play? Or is well, to say? Uh, I think part of the issue is because it was designed to sort of be device agnostic. You have to, you know, when you do that, you sacrifice some of the sort of low-level control you have of using, like, the native code for each device. Yeah. Um, so it's almost inevitable that once they... Uh, it, yeah. it was really secure on Android and iPhone, but when they branch out onto the the traditional desktop platforms, it kind of expands the variables at play exponentially. Uh, And I know with the HTML injection uh, vulnerability that was found, they patched it. They patched it before I heard about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I heard about it like a day or two after I got the update. Yeah. Uh, There was one other piece of news with signal um, in that Google uh, stop doing domain fronting. Um, mm-hmm. Now, domain fronting is basically uh, where you can make it look like your data is going to Google. So yeah. Signal was basically using this. and Yeah, uh, back when um, uh, certain second, third world countries yeah. had banned the app, uh, I think Egypt was one of the countries. Yeah, and, Egypt, Iran, a lot of those. Yeah, and... Um, does that imply the method that they were uh, using to do the ban was uh, domain or host name based? Yeah. And, and so this was their way around it. Yeah, they made it so it looked like their traffic was going to Google. Uh-huh. And then Google banned this. And now, well, yes, it sucks that Google banned this. It was not a feature that Google had sort of uh, offered as a service. It was sort of a side effect of some of their other ways they had done stuff. Mm-hmm. Um it still is unfortunate that they blocked this. I think um, they should have left it open. But then Amazon, so then they switched to Amazon using AWS, uh, and Amazon became aware of it, and they sent basically a cease and desist letter um, and open Whisper Systems uh, basically had to comply with that. They didn't really yeah. have much of a choice. So they're no longer using that. So currently Signal, in so far as I'm aware, is blocked in several third-world countries where it could really do the most good. 
Um, mm. But they're working on some workarounds, but it's going to take a little while because they're a small team. Yeah. Uh, and these are fairly large engineering problems to overcome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're really small, like what, yeah. like 20 people, something, something like that. Like that. You yeah. know, and it's great when you can have a huge company like Amazon or Google, f- uh, you know, provide the fix for you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's not the case. Yeah. So we have... Our last... Uh, last real story. Yeah, our last downer. <laughs> yeah, at least. Um, um, the city of Newark, New Jersey. They're, they're, uh, they're installing uh, dozens of surveillance c- cameras around the city and uh, then giving public access to the live footage and uh, asking people to call in anonymous t- tips. So is, this is basically the uh, the internet uh, equivalent of the uh, the neighborhood watch? Or? Yeah, this is also something the Stasi did. The, oh. the Stasi asked you to report on your neighbors. <laughs> the original neighborhood watch. Yeah, your friends in the Stasi. <laughs> um, which all of this is like the Stasi's wet dream. But, uh <laughs> I both yeah. like the idea that they're at least opening it up to the community, but we've also seen some, especially the last two weeks, there have been a number of stories about uh, people with biases calling the cops on people who are not white um, because of their biases. So I'm sure this is just going to be completely, you know, uh, it's going to be go over well. You know, nobody's going to let their bias get in the way. There's going to be no racially motivated or motivated uh, misuse of this system. Mm-hmm. To the cops' credits, they at least get some training, maybe? Yeah. Um, I, also, I just, if we're gonna democratize policing like this, you know, maybe we need civics classes back in the, uh, classroom. Yeah. I'm just not comfortable with, uh, my neighbors watching me. So speaking of cranks phoning in their opinions from r- remote locations, <laughs> it's time for Ritter's Random Rant. nature of what I'm about to tell you, you may want to take a seat. All right, everybody sitting? Great, here it is. Your government has got no shame whatsoever. All right, you can stand up and go back to what you were doing now as, as soon as the shock wears off. Now, of course, you're probably wondering, why the big revelation? In 2015, There was a law passed in Congress called the USA Freedom Act. The USA Freedom Act did two things to improve the situation with the degree of surveillance that our government had been using our money to subject us to. Yes, that's right. Keep that in mind. This is your money as being spent to spy on you. And the two requirements that were put forth by the USA Freedom Act, number one, was that the government do an annual disclosure of just exactly how many telephone records it has collected about the American people. And the other one was that the government had to get a warrant to do this, to do any collection of data on American people. Let's take that second part first. Let's talk about the utter stupidity of the need for a law like this. The group that we represent is called Restore the Fourth. If you read the Fourth Amendment, you already know that the government already needs a warrant. So, indeed, 
this law, while it appears to do something in a positive direction, really does absolutely nothing at all on that front. It states the thing that has already been stated. So let's go to the disclosure part. Because it would seem as though a government agency that knew that it was going to have to issue an annual report on whatever infringements it has placed upon our freedoms might, I don't know, maybe ease up a little bit on the amount of infringements it was placing upon our freedoms? Maybe? You think? Well, here's the great part. Since this law was passed in 2015, two years have passed, and we now have data on two years. So let's see what the numbers say. In 2016, the NSA collected records of 151 million telephone calls. That sounds like a hell of a lot of phone calls. Well, mind you, before all of this, you know, the, around the time that, that, that uh, Snowden made his revelations, it seems as though, on the whole, we were talking about 5 billion records. So, yeah, 151 million would be an improvement on that. It's still too many, I think, but you know it's it's a massive improvement and, and I would hope that in the years that follow that we would see some improvement in that number some further improvement I mean well that brings us to this year's report which came out about 15 days ago and according to that in 2017 there were 534 million records that is a three and a half times increase in the number of records this is a number of records that should be treated like a golf score. So a three and a half times increase is what we call a bad thing. You can picture me doing air quotes when I say the words bad thing. Part of the problem here is, of course, the warrant system. Yes, the government now has been told explicitly that they need to get a warrant every time they want to tap somebody's phone. Actually, they're not really. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me walk that back a little bit. They're not really tapping our phones. You see, all they're doing is collecting metadata about our phones. They don't know what we said. They just know who we called. Now, let's just say that it's way more information than they ought to have. But even though warrants are required to achieve this, they have to go before this secret court called the FISA court. This is a court that was actually put in place to reign in the surveillance tendencies of the Nixon administration. And unfortunately, it's kind of turned into a rubber stamp of legitimacy. This court will pretty much tell any government agent that comes to them and offers an explanation, they will grant them a, a warrant to do surveillance. There is no chance for anybody who is the subject of such surveillance to contest the warrant. You can't have the warrant quashed because it's a secret. It's a secret court that meets in secret, secretly, when approached secretly by people bearing secrets about what secrets of yours they think they ought to know. Funny how they're the only ones that get to keep secrets, huh? So the FISA court is ineffective. The only part that's been in any way effective 
is this part where they're actually reporting the numbers. And as you can see, that only works if they have any shame about it. Clearly they do not. And that's why we see the number going up three and a half times over two years. I'm Chuck Ritter, and that's Ritter's Random Rant for this round. So, one quick thing that we won't dive into too much, uh, a little bit of a TLDR. Um, you should check out uh, a video up on YouTube uh, entitled Google Selfish Ledger, and we'll put some links in the show notes about it. But uh, it's basically uh, sort of a glimpse at a proposed idea within Google of a way to use your data to help you do things. Um, and as a little caveat, turns out Google didn't pay for the stock footage they used in this video. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, for something completely different, we have some uh, some good news, actually. Yeah, I mean, with scandal after scandal and uh, overreach after overreach, uh, it's good to hear that there are actually some people around the country who are concerned about uh, privacy and surveillance, and they're actually getting some stuff done. So in California, there was a bill to hold police accountable for their surveillance and technology. That would actually be what uh, we opened the show with, right, um, SB 1186. Right. This uh, lived in a earlier incarnation uh, last year, but it, it, it missed passing by one vote, either in the state Senate House or state Senate, I forget. Yeah. So I guess this is a second attempt, but um, this is actually... Uh, something Restore the Fourth uh, ultimately had its hands in because um, the the bill is based on municipal and, and county ordinances that uh, we've worked with coalition partners to get passed in, in cities like Berkeley and Oakland and uh, Santa Clara County. Um, the gist of it is that uh, when the police want new toys, when they want surveillance tech, uh, they have to go before a board that's uh, answers to the legislature, and they have to kind of make the case of the pros and cons and, you know, how it will be balanced. And then I believe there's a, a an audit, at least in the existing ones that have passed, it's been every two years, they have to come back and show how it's been used and what the effects have been and um, basically has to get it renewed or they can't continue using it whether it's a stingray or uh, body cameras or license plate readers or some hitherto unknown uh, technology yeah so i guess i should note that it's almost good news uh the the, the bill is in the appropriations committee uh in the state senate in california so again if you're listening to us from california and especially if you're listening uh on the release date of this episode, Friday, May 25th. Uh, make sure to uh, call the head of the Appropriations Committee and, and urge them to uh, support it and push it to the Senate floor. Uh, and uh, check out our website for that contact information. So the next piece of good news is that ISO, which is the International Standards Organization, who come up with uh, a lot of the standards for computer and mathematical and uh, everything else that has standards, uh, they come up with these, uh, rejected some cryptography that was pushed forward by the NSA um, for Internet of Things, things? Uh, uh, IoT devices. Um, 
So the NSA was pushing for the inclusion of two uh, block cipher algorithms called Simon and Spec. And the NSA has a long history of weakening um, cryptography standards that they push for. Um, Don't they also have history of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> opening up routers in transit and oh, yeah. <laughs> weakening their firmware. <laughs> right, but they would never harm the security of an American company. No. Uh, never. So they were pushing for these, and in light of the Snowden revelations and a lot of other things, uh, ISO said, no, we're not going to use these standards. We don't feel confident that they are secure. Even if they look secure, you're pushing for them, and that makes them suspect. Which And that was the whole basis, was just, like, we don't trust you guys. Basically, it's not in the e- past. Not even a code audit, just, uh, you guys suck. Go home. They're, well... <laughs> It's possible that they could have seemed perfectly mathematically fa- sound, but the, yeah. the, the NSA has some knowledge or some tool or something yeah. that wouldn't be immediately obvious that would give them an advantage. mathematical three-card Monty going on. Yeah, here. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and it, you could have 12 of the brightest minds in the room looking at this thing, and, you know, maybe they missed that one little thing that some other bright mind somewhere has figured out how to weaponize. Yeah. So down in in Georgia, some more good news. Uh, the, there was a uh, overzealous cybersecurity bill that they were trying to pass, SB three one five in the Georgia's legislature, and um, I guess it passed. But then the the governor vetoed it. Is that correct? Uh, that's yeah. That was my understanding that there was this bill. Um, what was it? SB three one five. Yeah. That would uh, basically give. Um, them in uh, Georgia, a lot of leeway to sort of just look at stuff, and and it it was just pretty bad. Um, it was it would criminalize routine security research even more so than it already is. Which, Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with some of those instances, it can be pretty dicey looking at things in what should be perfectly reasonable uh, instances. So yeah. Uh, really so one sh- of these bills where you know it's uh, trying to outlaw computer system intrusion, but yeah. pays no attention to the intent or the context under which it happens. Right. It's refreshing to see people from both sides of this political duology that we sort of come to expect mm-hmm. uh, the Republicans and the Democrats to come together, um, and people from both sides to say that these things are just ridiculous um, and listen to reason. It's refreshing. So some uh, some good news on the federal level. For all the times we hear the feds uh, complaining about uh, encryption and wanting to uh, have a backdoor or quote-unquote uh, responsible encryption, I guess some, some more learned members of Congress uh, got together and uh, put forth a bill that would actually protect the integrity of encryption and uh, ban backdoors or, or anything like it. Yeah, it looks like that uh, it's basically going to forbid states from asking manufacturers to install encryption backdoors, which uh, a couple states have made moves to do. And, you know, this is put forth by a uh, Democrat from California, a Republican from Texas, a Democrat from Washington, or a Republican from Michigan. So it's really nice to see people uh, from across the aisle reaching out and 
trying to restore a little sanity yeah. to our world. And as we've seen, you know, like how you deal with privacy, surveillance, or encryption, having an R or D next to your name is really no indication of which way you're going to go. We, we've seen Democrats and Republicans uh, swing were, both ways. Yeah, <laughs> we we've had both patriots and pariahs on either side of the aisle when it comes to privacy and surveillance. But I believe this bill was put forth, uh, led by a, uh, a group led by uh, Congressman Ted Lieu. Of, uh, he's a Democrat in California, right? Yeah. And um, I believe he's one of the few members of Congress that have a computer science degree. Probably the only. Yeah. I, I, I'd be interested. I, I, yeah, I think he's the only one, but I don't quote me on that. Yeah. Uh, as I say, I want to say, uh, I forget his name in, in Hawaii. Oh. Uh, yeah, maybe. I'm, his name escapes me, but um, I, we'll have to keep an eye, you know, on this bill as it moves. You know, hopefully, I, I'm assuming it's still in committees and what have you. Uh, but hopefully, we'll see it get to the House floor and then maybe the Senate. Yeah, hopefully. So the Fourth Circuit Court ruled that border uh, officials can't subject electronic devices to. Um, suspicionless uh, forensic searches. So mm -hmm. uh, this restores the probable cause to their searches, which mm -hmm. is nice. Um, and this sort of comes after uh, the uh, ruling back in 2014 on uh, the Supreme Court it was uh, Riley versus California, I believe, um, that border guards don't have, and the ruling was that border guards don't have unlimited authority to search your personal electronic devices. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now we have U.S. versus Colzu. I'm probably butchering that name, and I apologize. But it's the uh, first ruling in the wake of Riley versus California that sort of builds on that to say that not only do they not have unlimited ability to search your personal devices, they also have to have probable cause, which mm -hmm. uh, this is one of those really heartwarming instances of case law really working uh, in our favor. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you get one brick and you keep building on it, and eventually you have a solid legal foundation from which you can defend your rights. Which... I mean, at this point, you know, a, a, a smart someone's smartphone in this day and age, while not physical, it's you know metaphysical, but I would say equally as expansive or more so than someone's home uh, to search. This is you know not just checking your back pocket to see if you know. I personally don't keep papers in a locked vault or safe somewhere you know i the, the the papers i do keep are in a manila envelope somewhere but most of my personal records are kept digitally digitally and thus accessible through my cell phone for my own convenience but uh yeah so that is some good news in the world and uh lastly last bit of good news is um out California way, not only are they uh, trying to push more police oversight, but uh, on the campaign trail, things are looking uh, up for privacy and surveillance because uh, Nancy Pelosi, who's long been uh, the incumbent congressperson out there, uh, has a new challenger. Somebody, uh, uh, a lot of us at Restore the Fourth know and love, uh, Shahid Buttar, uh, is running for Congress in the 12th Congressional District, and uh, definitely a pro-privacy and pro-civil liberties candidate, and um, I would say much more representative of the constituency 
in the Bay Area. So we actually uh, uh, got a chance to chat with Shahid about his upcoming campaign. So we're glad to be joined today by Shahid Buttar, who's uh, running in the 12th Congressional District against the incumbent Nancy Pelosi. And um, we're happy to hear that uh, he's uh, starting the march to Washington because there's only a handful of of really privacy-minded politicians in Washington thus far. And Shahid's a familiar name to us, uh, especially to me, because, um, uh, you know, prior to your campaign, uh, you did good work with uh, the Bill of Rights Defense Committee up here in Massachusetts. And uh, until very recently, you, you were head of grassroots outreach at the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I was the director of grassroots advocacy there. So what drove you to hit the campaign trail? So, you know, the last 10 years... 13 years, I suppose, to be accurate. I've been fighting mass surveillance since it was first revealed in 2005, and I have watched the concerns of too many people fall on too many deaf ears. And I live in the country's most progressive city in San Francisco, and at the very least, I want my city to be represented uh, by a voice in Washington that will do the right thing when confronting those issues. In January, Nancy Pelosi helped undermine a proposed judicial warrant requirement which would have constrained illegitimate or fraudulent or uh, uh, otherwise unjustified government searches of uh, or about Americans, not just by NSA, but by FBI and DEA, too. And by by undermining that requirement, what Pelosi essentially did was empower the Trump administration and the extension of surveillance for six years, its expansion beyond the baseline that the Obama administration uh, inherited that was offensive to me, and I basically was unwilling to watch that from the sidelines. It was just a few weeks later uh, when uh, Pelosi let Trump off the hook with the budget deal uh, without any fixes for immigrant students, and I'm an immigrant myself. So between being an immigrant and in uh, a government accountability anti-surveillance advocate and watching my representative undermine our city's interests on both of those issues, I really, quite frankly, felt like I had no choice. Now, I've heard a number of people characterize privacy issues as progressive or left-leaning, but I found that uh, whether someone has an R or a D next to their name is not really a good predictor of what their stance is going to be on privacy rights. I've found that there are, you know, use a term that we use here, there are both patriots and pariahs uh, (laughs) on either side of the aisle. How do you view the privacy issue in terms of do you think it, it it's kind of taking us into a new dimension of politics that doesn't fit the, the two-party agenda? And how do you see yourself fitting into that dimension? Yeah, great question. And, and you closed it with exactly where I was going to go. I do think that these issues, not just uh, – and I, for what it's worth, I would – not merely describe it as privacy. At the end of the day, what I'm most concerned about is freedom of expression and the preservation of democracy. And that's why I'm concerned about surveillance. It doesn't just undermine privacy. It undermines agency and autonomy and speech and dissent, which is to say surveillance undermines democracy. And and that's the value with which I'm most concerned. Uh, But, you know, and there are other uh, federal policies which undermine democracy, where you can see a transpartisan consensus 
in a very fundamental paradigm change. Another of those areas would be drug policy. Uh, voices on both the left and the right recognize that the war on drugs is an example of a failed a, 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 or a very successful example of, of, of institutional systematic racism. Mm. Uh, and the fact that mass incarceration has uh, eviscerated not just the lives of individuals and families, but entire communities uh, makes the legalization of cannabis a civil rights imperative, as well as a green job stimulus initiative. That's a position on which you can find a transpartisan consensus across the country impeded by a bipartisan rejection in Washington. You see the same formula on civil liberties. You see the same formula on restrictions to guard the integrity of the political process in our elections. Uh, where the American people wants to see reforms that neither of the political parties will accept. Uh, and because the establishments of the parties on some of these issues are marching in lockstep, it's basically forcing a realignment where instead of it being left versus right and Democrat versus Republican, as either of the parties would want to characterize the conflict uh, gripping Congress in our country, ultimately on these issues, the conflict is becoming center versus periphery the establishment versus the wings. And I do think absolutely that uh, the limits on executive power, checks and balances, robust transparency, these issues that involve investigating the intelligence agencies and the law enforcement uh, organs of the state, these are issues that unite Americans, regardless of our political stripes. And in that is profound electoral opportunity, as well as a reflection of the delegitimation of the corporate parties by their own establishments. You know, they are delegitimating themselves, which is to say there's a real opportunity, I think, for uh, sincere progressive populism informed by a constitutional commitment to liberty principles uh, can find a uh, very fertile uh, route in the uh, certainly here in San Francisco. Now, speaking of San Francisco, I would say that uh, the Bay Area has been uh, kind of a breeding ground for some of the greatest action, loudest voices in terms of civil liberties and privacy and surveillance. And in light of, you know, what you described about Nancy Pelosi, it just it, it almost seems contradictory to what we see of the populace at large in that area. And I'm just it it always baffled me how someone like Pelosi could represent a hmm. district like uh, some place like this. Yeah. Right. And how can you I mean, do you have any kind of take on how that's come to be that we have, you know, for lack of a better yeah, yeah. word, a centrist or neoliberal uh, representing arguably the most progressive place in the entire country, in my opinion? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're uh, uh Absolutely right to ask the question. I have asked it myself a great many times. It is ultimately why I'm running for office, because I can't come up with a good answer. There is no good reason for a city this progressive, especially in a country that is sliding in this conservative direction, to be represented by someone who is so relatively moderate, right? Uh, in some circles, Pelosi is derided by some of the right wing as being the most liberal member in Congress, but I don't even think she can be described fairly as a liberal at all. You can't extend mass surveillance or sweep CIA torture under the rug or turn a blind eye to police violence with impunity and call yourself liberal at all, let alone the most liberal member of the body. And, and just to be clear, San Francisco is a very unique city with a very unique political culture. You know, we are a peace justice town. We are a tech center. Uh, we are an LGBT mecca. Uh, we are a cannabis capital. And between these interests, it is remarkable 
that someone so committed to Washington and Wall Street's interests is co-opting the voice of what should be San Francisco in Congress. I would say one other thing about that. The reason particularly that Nancy Pelosi has occupied the seat for 30 years and the reason why her daughter, absent a forceful, incredible challenge, is potentially poised to lock it down for another generation uh, after she essentially inherits the seat in two years, as the Pelosi's, I've been led to understand, are planning. The, the reason why that's the case is because they raise more money than God. And <laughs> that's the rationale for the corporate co-optation of the Democratic Party generally. You know, Pelosi embodies it to a great extent. Uh, and, you know, they raise a lot of money and that they uh, defend the interest of the 1%. And that's ultimately, you know, what they're there for. I think there's a real opportunity to not outraise her, because I want to make clear, I, I don't have any illusions that I'll be able to outfundraise Nancy Pelosi. But the fact of the matter is, because each of the positions I'm articulating are favored by a majority of San Franciscans, I don't have to outraise her, I just have to raise enough to get the word out. And mm -hmm. that seems to be happening. You know, we've been endorsed by a whole uh, array of organizations across the community, including the SF Tenants Union and the SF Bay Guardian, two of the uh, more significant endorsements, I dare say, in the city, in, in, in addition to the League of Pissed Off Voters and the SF Bernie Kratz and Progressive Democrats of America and the Brownie De Mary Democratic Club and Veterans for Bernie. Um, you know, there's and progressive uh, former supervisor John Avalos, the heads of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the Freedom of the Press Foundation, the founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange, State Department whistleblower, the general counsel of RiseUp.net. I can go on. But I think the, the word is getting out. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have a, an alternative, I think, is, is the crucial thing for me to remind our neighbors. And, and I think the reason why Pelosi has been able to hold down the seat for 30 years, ultimately, is that they've raised so much money that they've scared away people who might have the preparation uh, to plausibly contend for the seat. But I do have that preparation, and uh, I'm willing to throw myself on the tracks, and here I am. You know, I want to recharacterize myself. I, you know, I think in asking my last question, I kind of fell into that knee-jerk lockstep of, of progressive, not progressive. And, you know, I want to add to that that, like you said, this new dimension of the, the wings versus the establishment. You know, you could reframe my question and say, how is someone so establishment uh, controlling such a wing-oriented area? Right. And you right. you named it. It's the dollar signs are the key to that. That's what keeps, you know, the inertia in our political system going. So in terms of, uh, you know, we are a Fourth Amendment-oriented podcast and organization. You know, it, if we end up seeing you head off to Washington, what would you bring to those issues, uh, you know, I know in the Bay Area, you you have passed many municipal and county ordinances, and as we mentioned before, hopefully a, a state bill, if we're lucky. But, uh, you know, what would you like to accomplish at the federal level in terms of privacy, surveillance, uh, th those types of issues? The very first thing I would do is investigate the intelligence agencies in a robust way of the sort that has not happened in the last 40 years. No one has investigated the intelligence agencies with any degree of rigor since the late 70s. And that's the first thing I would fix. Ultimately, among my goals would include resuscitating the reform that Pelosi undermined earlier this year, a judicial warrant requirement to constrain any search or collection of information from, to, or about any American. Mm -hmm. uh, that should not be a radical proposition. It's mm -hmm. straight out of the Constitution. Was this the, the uh, 
sunset of Section 702 that we're speaking of? It was in the context when – so this earlier this year, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was set to expire. It was in the context of the debate over its reauthorization and extension that the warrant requirement was proposed. There were a couple different measures, among them the USA Rights Act uh, and then the uh, Lofgren-Poe Amendment, and it was the Lofgren-Poe Coalition – whose proposed amendment was kept from coming to the floor, uh, and Pelosi had a hand in that decision. And that's Mm -hmm. the amendment that would have passed, likely with a transpartisan majority that would have imposed precisely this kind of requirement. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the House didn't get a chance to vote on it, even though in prior years, I think it was 2015, when the Poe-Lofgren Amendment passed the House with a veto-proof majority uh, before being written out in the conference committee. So there is repeatedly been an expression of interest in the House in legislating precisely that kind of requirement. Uh, And it's one that I would continue to build the consensus for, both by replacing Pelosi in this seat and also by working with uh, colleagues in the chamber across the aisle who might feel similarly about the liberty principles, however we might disagree about any number of others. Other things I would do in this arena beyond collection limits, a warrant requirement is a collection limit. And it's a collection limit that functionally would end mass surveillance. I also want to limit it in other dimensions. I want to have data retention limits so that the state can't hold on to information indefinitely. I want to particularly legislate use limits to make sure that these powerful tools are used only for the purposes of preventing acts of violence and not for, for instance, as our country has done before, infiltrating or neutralizing or disrupting domestic groups. Uh, I want to make sure that that information is not used as it has been used in dozens of instances to spy on the ex-wives and former lovers of particular individuals who happen to work for the NSA or some corporate contractor. Uh, I want to make sure that the use limits respect the purposes uh, for which um, I want to say the purposes for which these tools were built, because they weren't built just for national security purposes. And I particularly want to make sure that they're limited in a way that they can't threaten dissent. Um, <clears throat> limits on dissemination to make sure that uh, intelligence that is collected um, is not just available willy-nilly to be laundered and then introduced into criminal courts despite its potential unreliability. Uh, these are reforms that <clears throat> pay heed to long-established constitutional principles. They're reforms that are well outside the limits of the contemporary congressional consensus. Um, but, you know, to your point, what do I propose to do in Congress? I aspire to be the constitutional conscience of the Congress uh, and investigating the intelligence agencies, restoring a warrant requirement for domestic surveillance is just the tip of the iceberg. I want to hold people who are complicit in torture accountable, including the current head of the CIA uh, and everyone in the chain of command who oversaw not only human rights abuses, Uh, under the Bush administration, but also the uh, continuing failure to secure accountability. We continue to violate international law in the United States every day that we fail to prosecute the officials up and down the chain of command who were complicit in human rights principles that we fought a world war to defend, Mm. uh, or pardon me, a world war to establish in the first place, and that we sent a Supreme Court justice uh, to prosecute the central cases, creating the international human rights regime. And while it was the Bush administration to use tortured some folks, it was the Obama administration that said it was okay. And it's the Trump administration now reinviting the resuscitation of those principles. And it is Democrats in the Senate who have consented to let an international war criminal 
lead the CIA. And that's exactly one of the reasons why Congress needs a constitutional conscience, because it seems to be all too absent at the moment. So if Democrats and voters at large, uh, you know, want to vote for a constitutional conscience, uh, what opportunities do they have coming up? So Tuesday, June 5th is the jungle primary for the seat for which I'm running. That means it's an open primary. Any registered voter in San Francisco can vote for any candidate. And there are over half a dozen candidates vying uh, for this seat, the 12th congressional district seat. Nancy Pelosi, obviously, is the favored incumbent. And the jungle primary system means that uh, whoever takes second place on June 5th will have an opportunity to stay in the general election until November and then fight for the seat uh, in an automatic runoff then. So, uh, again, I would encourage any of your listeners concerned about these issues to vote for Shahid Buttar on June 5th. Uh, you can learn more about our campaign in the meantime at www.shahidforchange.us. Uh, at that site, you can sign up to volunteer. If you want to help us distribute literature at events or across targeted precincts or text bank or phone bank um, or... Uh, there are actually a whole range of opportunities. We have social media teams that coordinate our presences on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, we have policy teams that are addressing a whole range of issues, tons of opportunities to get involved. Uh, it's a grassroots-powered campaign. We have almost 200 volunteers uh, performing a range of functions and activities. Uh, we have an event, I should note, um, uh, on Friday, uh, May 25th at Brick and Mortar, in the mission, it's going to be a pre-election rally. It's going to be a party. We're going to have spoken word poets and singers in between speakers from different organizations that are supporting our campaign. I'm going to DJ a set at the end of the night. Uh, so we'll get nice. to dance a little bit and uh, build some energy and excitement before we get out the vote uh, the following weekend. And again, uh, voting on June 5th is the key if you want to see a limit to uh, government surveillance and an end on mass, an end to mass surveillance, or an end to the drug war, or a challenge to the bipartisan corporate co-optation of federal policy. June fifth offers uh, an opportunity, and I'll, uh, Shahid Buttar, I'll be very eager to uh, invite the support of any of your listeners. All right, Shahid Buttar, running for twelfth congressional district. Uh, we thank you for joining us, and we wish you good luck. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So we've come quite a way in what is turning out to be uh, almost a mega episode, but uh, we would be remiss if we didn't name our patriots and pariahs for this episode. And um, who's our protector of privacy rights this episode? So the uh, surprisingly, uh, somebody associated with Facebook, actually, the co-founder of WhatsApp, um, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Jan Combe basically left Facebook after some internal uh, arguments about how WhatsApp data was being used, um, specifically how uh, Facebook was using the user data and was using it for advertising or advertising and how they were handling encryption. Um, there seems to be some sort of speculative evidence that Facebook might basically be doing a man in the middle on the encryption of WhatsApp to better target you. But that's not really involved in this. It was just something. But, you know, this guy is basically leaving a pretty cushy job mm -hmm. that Facebook probably wouldn't have forced him out. And, you know... But he's really... Uh, he, he took a stand that he, he's already fairly rich, so it's not going to cost him a whole lot. But he took a stand that, 
did probably cost him financially, which is nice to see. Yeah, especially. And, and uh, he recently f- started a foundation for privacy rights, which is yeah. uh, kind of a now a down uh, or an upstream funder of Open Whisper Systems, in my understanding. Yeah, I believe Open Whisper Systems actually was at some point and still might be providing the crypto for WhatsApp. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. So. But it sounds like Facebook was acquiring certain metadata, phone numbers, yeah. things like that to be integrated or cross-pollinated with Facebook, and he didn't like that. And Which is reasonable. Um, yeah. And it's interesting to see sort of that this comes before the advent or the full implementation of the GDPR, indicating that maybe Facebook's trying to, trying to do a little something yeah. to, to get around yeah. that. But, but it, it also kind of makes the argument that maybe, like, if when Moxie Marlin Spike went ahead and did starting a nonprofit for the purpose of making a end-to-end secure mm. chatting app, and him and his people are living pretty lean, they're not living the Silicon Valley high life. The from uh, what I understand. billion dollars that he uh, got paid for Facebook. Yeah, uh, this is Jan when he sold. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my point him. being is, does it make the argument that if you're gonna dip your feet in the corporate waters, this kind of stuff is inevitable? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I do like to see somebody taking a, a moral stand about this. So um, onto our pariah. Initially, uh, someone else took a reasonable moral stand, and that was um, the C- Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York City. On May the 4th, which you may be familiar, uh, becomes a, a day of many Star Wars memes, and uh, as the hashtag May the 4th be with you, you know, flies around social media. But, you know, a lot of us, you know, ourselves included at Restore the 4th, like to uh, use it as an excuse to bring awareness to the Fourth Amendment. So uh, the CCRB did this as well when they tweeted, uh, you know, hashtag May the 4th Amendment protect you from unreasonable searches and seizures and if you feel your rights have been violated by an nypd officer file a complaint here and they had a link to their regular complaint submission page and uh this apparently prompted our pariah namely the new york city sergeant's benevolent association to tweet back quote you are all a disgrace you sit on your ass and target the nypd all while growing up on the nipple of what's easy you have no clue what an nypd officer does yet you target us and disparage our integrity one day you will dial 911 when evil is at your door and thank god for the nypd well that escalated quickly (laughs) very quickly (laughs) And not only that, both of these are still up. Uh, you know, I'm not surprised that the CCRBs is still up, but I think, um, you know, I, I'm a little surprised that the uh, the other one's still up because this is Twitter, and people often hastily delete tweets that you know might bring them a little bad publicity. So. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Is that uh, lend to the argument that uh, if you're a cop, you don't have to have as much shame because you're protected, or or maybe uh, I don't know what the public records rules are maybe they can't delete it (laughs) well here's the thing i want to make the distinction that uh this is not the nypd tweeting this this Uh, is uh this is an advocacy organization uh i you know basically um i'm not exactly clear on how it uh, differs from uh the 
New York City Police Union, which is the PBA. I don't know if this, uh, uh, you know, only pertains to certain brass or what have you, being the sergeants, but but this is, is an advocacy group for uh, policemen, not the police department itself. And in fact, you know, we reached out to both of these organizations. While we couldn't get an interview with either one, um, I did get to speak with uh, someone at the CCRB briefly, and uh, I learned a bit about their organization. Here in Albany, we, we have a similar review board for complaints like this. I've never seen uh, this kind of harsh reaction to anything our board uh, has said or done. But down there, they have, um, you know, th- three out of all of the uh, representatives on this board, three of them are selected by the NYPD to kind of represent their interests and angle. So it's not like the CCRB is this wholly anti-cop organization. So that makes this response even less sensical to me. But then what were they really doing other than educating people, reminding people about the Fourth Amendment? And if someone's Fourth Amendment rights were violated, they would be the ones to go to if you live in New York City. So, I mean, the response from the NYCSBA, in my opinion, smacks of just a distaste for any oversight whatsoever. And we we did reach out to them. I was hoping that maybe we could hear from them directly. You know, part of me wonders, is this just uh, a good old-fashioned? flame war um (laughs) where you know like if we got this guy on the phone would he really carry on with this kind of rhetoric yeah you know and i guess i still extend that uh we we played a bit of phone tag so they it seemed like they did try to respond to us but but ultimately they never got back about an interview I don't know. I always say that police in America have one of the hardest jobs in the world because they have to do it with one arm tied behind their back. I recognize that. But their arm was tied by the founding fathers because they saw the need to maintain a greater good and a level of balance. I'm sure it's much easier to be a police officer in Russia or China or some other nations like that. But um, in the United States, checks and balances and uh, oversight is key to how our society runs. So I see a statement like this from the SBA as having utter contempt contempt for the people that they supposedly protect. So with that, we'll wrap things up. We hope you enjoyed episode 11 of Privacy Patriots the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for our next episode. Head over to www.privacypatriots.org where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. So keep watching The Watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.